Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast with Neve and my co-host Connor. Hey everyone. And today we are talking about episodes 20 through 26 of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. So we are wrapping up this series. I hope you all are ready for the final stretch. Yeah. Because it is a doozy. <laughs> um, let's see how long this episode is. Let's go. You start this one out, Connor. All right. Well, so just some quick introductory comments. I think we've touched on this before in our previous episodes. There is a uh, Ghost in the Shell kind of alternates between having these these kind of suites of episodes where they're kind of narrative and narratively and thematically conjoined, um, and then you have some like one offs um, here and there. Here at episode twenty, it basically turns, and you have this just run of continuous narrative pretty much uh, to the end of the episode. As a result of that. There might be a lot of going back and forth, speaking generally about things that happen in the whole of these seven episodes. So yeah, bear with us. I gave you fair warning. We'll go ahead and start off with a a recap of episode 20, though. So in episode 20 is where the case, kind of the Laughing Man case, kind of begins to get cracked. Togusa follows the literary uh, interpretation angle and deduces that the Laughing Man is after some sort of paper record that can't be stored, uh, reproduced digitally. This leads him to the archives at the Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare, the MHLW, as it will be later referred to. The thing that he eventually finds is a list of recipients of this treatment called the Murai vaccine. It's revealed that the Murai vaccine is a treatment uh, for a condition called cyberbrain sclerosis that was uh, denied and suppressed uh, years years before uh, in favor of a different kind of treatment called micromachines, which we essentially can surmise as some, some kind of nanomachine type treatment. The uh, list, eventually, he traces it to a group called the Sunflower Society, uh, which is promptly rated by the DEA, the Japanese DEA, uh, who massacre the group and plant uh, evidence of drug dealing and, and crime and so on. Togusa gets shot, seriously wounded, and he escapes. 
he ends up in the hospital where Section 9 later finds him, um, and they retrieve his memories and discover that the DEA has basically perpetrated this massacre. They uh, then use the uh, CIA's satellite network to surveil all of Japan, and they locate um, this doctor, Dr. Imakarusu, who was the head of the drug approval agency in Japan at the time uh, and was responsible for denying approval for medical use of the Murai vaccine. And they uh, attempt to locate him and and turn uh, him witness. And following an extended shootout between Section 9 and the DEA, Imakurusu, he's saved, but then he is uh, distracted by Aoi and assassinated. So... Uh, that's episodes 20 and 21 in in a nutshell. Uh, I know you had some um, some theory stuff that you wanted to to touch on. So I'll let you go ahead and, and start off with that. Yeah. So this is one of those where like there was a moment when I was going into because, again, we watched this all previously when we were so like we were planning on recording this podcast and I, I watched through episode 20 last time and i stopped there when it became when i was like i'm having a baby i can't do this <laughs> um, it turns not, out not literally can't. having a baby at that moment yeah but, yeah I, but i i have a newborn i cannot record a podcast right now i need sleep anytime that i have free time i need to spend it sleeping <laughs> um but it, like there was this thing of togusa making this comment of art imitates life and so the opposite should also be true and i like vaguely had this this line stuck in my head and i didn't remember where it came up in this series but it's part of why i was like i'm not misremembering this am i but it was it was why i was like oh my god i need to like reach for bazen and how bazen intersects with benjamin because there's this quote from bazen's essay the ontology of the photographic a photographic image which is the very first essay in what is cinema volume one where bazen says by the power of photography the natural image of a world that we neither know nor can see nature at last does more than imitate art she imitates the artist and so like this quote was seared into my brain both bazen's quote and then togus's quote and i was like i hope i'm not making it up and that's why i I initially reached for opening bazen this like essay within it about benjamin and and bazen and i was trying to like pull this out and waiting for this moment to to specifically point here i'm going to kind of break down bazen's quote a little bit what bazen is saying in this moment is uh, so this is in relation to like what is the purpose of cinema or what is the what makes cinema valuable and bazen says that the photographic image and especially cinema which does this not only with the image but with motion itself or with temporality itself it the technical reproduction that allows this is a natural process certainly there are human hands that are involved with like rendering it into something that we ourselves can view but what's actually happening is just the exposure of light onto a layer of photosensitive granules that have been suspended in a film placed on a plastic strip and that process that creates the image that process of making those images over and over again is a thing that a human hand can point and direct and press but that is happening 
it is nature creating the image. It is light and the way that light is reacting with other natural elements that creates that image. And so the photographic image, although the artist might have some hand in it, nature itself is becoming the artist in the sense that what it is doing is nature is imitating art, imitating nature, essentially. Or it is life imitating art that is imitating life. It is like this weird process by which we are making nature play the role of artist as well. And so Bosin's approach was when the aura is reintroduced to the, to the photograph or reintroduced to the film, it is because of a, an overassertion of the artist hand, of the human hand, and that the true beauty of it is actually the stepping back, is the finding ways to allow this process to happen in a way that allows it to show us something that we ourselves with our own eye cannot see. It reveals a reality that is beyond our human perception. I'm actually going to like pull up the full quote here. Forewarning, as much as I love Bazen, Bazen is also a fucking dude. Um, and so there's some like weird virginal r- language in here that I do not agree with. <laughs> but here, here's the full paragraph that that quote comes from. The aesthetic qualities of photogra- uh, photography are to be sought in its power to lay bare their realities. It is not for me to separate off in the complex fabric of the objective world, here a reflection of a damp sidewalk, there the gesture of a child. Only the impassive lens, stripping its object of all those ways of seeing it, those piled-up preconceptions, that spiritual dust and grime with which my eyes have covered it, is able to present it in all of its virginal purity to my attention and consequently to my love. Again, fuck you, Bazen, for this virginal purity nonsense. By the power of photography, the national image of a world that we neither know nor can see, nature at last does more than imitate art, she imitates the artist. So that's like the full paragraph that this comes in. This is one of those like, you know, I'm front-loading theory here. Sorry, y'all who don't care about the theory part. (laughs) But this this is like part of what's this big thematic crux that is hitting me with this series. Because when we talk about both Aoi and then like the laughing man more broadly and this idea of copies without an original part of what I think this series is suggesting is that that process, this process that is going beyond Aoi the human and is extending to the broader laughing man and the broader standalone complex phenomenon is producing something revelatory. It is allowing the the humans that are involved in this story to see something broader than any of them can alone see. And this is, for Bazen, like the value of removing the aura from art. And I think could be in some degree read as the value of removing the aura from humanity. The, the process of the reproduction of humanity that has been happening throughout the series, the this process like creating this distance that then allows some some uh, some new revelation or understanding that does not otherwise exist if you are continually over applying like a version of thinking about the human soul or the ghost or consciousness in a way that you know to again echo Bazen has all those piled up preconceptions, that spiritual dust and grime that have covered it over. 
it is like freeing it in some new way. So this is this is like I'm front loading it here. This is me on some knee of bullshit, full on theory. But this is me like putting forward. I think this is part of what I find so interesting about the series is it saying this process of movement that is happening where the the aura of the ghost within the shell it is if you allow the process to happen in the correct way if you are not stepping into it and doing it in these ways that are subjecting it to like you know we we talked previously about the father and the son and the like replication of nationalist violence i think that is something where this process is being used to like inject again some sort of of humanistic aura of you know the way that the the loss of aura of art can be used to support fascism whereas this is offering that other opportunity for something revelatory and potentially revolutionary and as we'll get into as these episodes go on i think this series as a whole is a tragedy because it is never fully realized that like revolutionary potential is never realized, even though it exists for a moment. But I'll turn it over to you now. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, just as a, a, another general comment, just from our notes and from how I know I'm going to talk about some of these episodes, I think this is going to be a very theory heavy episode. So yeah, apologies to our listeners, but I I do think that instead of like providing a strict, at least my goal with the theory, instead of providing a strict, like rigid way of interpreting like everything that, you know, goes on in the series or like fully accounts for everything. I think the theory is useful as in, sometimes as an access point to think about some of the, like the deeper themes, um, because Ghost in the Shell in these episodes, especially as they, you know, address some of them explicitly, uh, some of the big themes that are going on, they're they're complex. And the meaning of a lot of the uh, discussions and, you know, themes that are brought out in those discussions is not immediately apparent. So I know, like, I'm going to bring up some theory shit later. And I think one of the things that you bring up, the the idea of the standalone complex having some sort of revolutionary potential is obviously key here. The part that I think I would like to talk about, especially following that, is um, I'd like to hone in a little bit more on Aoi, because we we now, in, in these like final episodes, he becomes much more of an explicit actor um, in the sense that we see him actually doing things. Yeah. And we have these like in our notes, I have them as like blank versus blank, where we have these very clearly staged, um, like conversations, juxtapositions, juxtapositions, and conversations more more so than like really any other part of the of the series, where they're pretty clearly sta- uh, staged like showdowns in these patterns where history, philosophy, and um, some of the central themes of the, uh, the events of the series and then some of the central themes as well are discussed. So in uh, in these episodes, we have uh, an inter- very interesting discussion between Aoi and Imakarusu, where uh, Aoi is basically confronting Imakarusu about his actions, denying the Murai vaccine. And Imakarusu 
attempts to defend his 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 actions. Uh, and basically, the substance of the argument is that the Mirai vaccine was more effective in terms of preventing cyber-range sclerosis, and as such, should have been you know should have been not only allowed but adopted by the medical establishment and you know utilized to its full potential. Uh, whereas Makarusu's argument is that the micromachine therapy had more potential as a technology fundamentally for other uses, um, not only for cyber cyber brain sclerosis, but just for medical applications generally. And that it was a crucial point in the development of this technology. And if it didn't receive institutional support, then it would have potentially undermined their ability to, to basically... Um, it would be a sacrifice of the greater good in the long run, which I think this conversation uh, warrants further examination. I think part of what's happening in the series and then in this conversation as well is it's really the series is really dissecting the way that individuals and institutions relate to one another. This is something I'll touch on later with the, the author, Arthur Kessler, and the, the namesake of the series, his text, Ghost in the Machine. But there's a way in which individuals in institutions ideologically adapt to the objectives of the institutions and then rationalize their their actions in accordance with institutional thinking. So obviously, uh, the medical establishment had a lot to gain monetarily from micromachine therapy because it was more uh, invested. One of the key points is that Mirai was a, uh, a rural doctor who was an outsider to the uh, medical system. Whereas micromachine therapy was developed by all of the uh, major genomics companies, which are now the oligarchy that rules society. Um, yeah, and, and even the discovery of the Mirai vaccine was like a pure accident. It was just like, oh, this seems to work and we don't even know why. Whereas the micromachine therapy had been uh, was the product of immense investment and like years of research, which we later learned from Serrano. So um, Imakurusu initially maintains this, this rationalized position of, oh, well, micromachine therapy had, you know, this greater potential in the long run, where, of course, we also see that these arguments were serving the status quo and the perpetuation of not only capital through, you know, the, the stocks and the assets of the micromachine companies, but also the entire institutional imperative of backing the uh, micromachine therapy. This is something that is going to a pattern that will be repeated several times until the final episode, which in turn leads me to the, my first kind of reference to Aoi's method of political change. Uh, I think we, again, this is the first time that we really hear him speak and outline his political philosophy. I think a good point of discussion is to consider like how do we understand him, his his political philosophy? Imakurusu makes the point that Aoi could just ghost hack him and basically force him to go to the public and admit all all of this, um, the conspiracy to deny the the Mirai vaccine. And Aoi says um, something to the effect of "No, because then it wouldn't be it wouldn't be legitimate or it wouldn't be as impactful." We see this with Serrano as well. When we see the, the full sequence of his initial interaction with Serrano um, in a few episodes, part of Aoi's method is that he wants to 
convince the corrupt to change their ways and admit wrongdoing in a public forum. Not only to force them to do something, but to convince them to, to do something and basically win them over to, to his way of thinking. I think uh, I, I can leave that uh, out there <laughs> for now as something that we will, again, start looking at more and more later. But I just want to kind of uh, bring up that we saw this with Kanzaki uh, earlier on, Kanzaki being a corrupt official who was in essence forced to admit his corruption, denying the organ, the organ trade. But he will reappear soon. And I think that reappearance is significant. Yeah, I like to, to somewhat respond to what you were talking about. I like one thing that I really notice with Awe here uh, throughout these scenes. And I, I think this is the first time that we really see this explicitly is Awe has a great deal of reference for both the original and the truth. And I think those are kind of linked to some degree mm-hmm. in his mind. Um, this includes the reference for printed material that has not been digitally reproduced, as well as this push for like, I want to convince you because you need to say the truth. If I make you say the truth, then even though the, the, the like facts are still being sta- stated, the you stating it is a lie and that is still like phony it seems from my reading like oppositional to what Awe wants like Awe wants the truth to come out and the truth necessitates that it is it is also like a true desire of the person to admit the wrongdoing and to reveal the truth and at the same time there's this weird like divide within his mind of it is okay to omit the truth it is okay for me to omit my myself from the picture. It is okay to like erase an understanding of myself as part of what I'm doing. And that is like somehow distinct from him, from these other, um, this sense of like forcing someone to say the truth, but that in the forcing becomes like coercive and a lie. Mm-hmm. And, and this is like, I think this is one of the core things that becomes really interesting with Awe, especially as this further develops and we see, like, you know, there's a certain intentionality as we're talking now to say Aoe as separate from the laughing man. Because the laughing man is a copy without an original because the laughing man is distinct from Aoe, who is the original. And so, like, I think there's also this reverence that Aoe has for, like, this is me as someone who is distinct from the laughing man, which is itself still, even though someone could say quote unquote, I am the original laughing man that I am not. That is never a name that I took upon myself and that the copies are copying something that never existed because I have like this still distinct originality that is separate from that. And like, this is going to continue to be further developed, but it's, I think it's one of the core tensions of this character. And, And it's hard for me to like fully untangle this sense of, the original from the sense of the truth. I think mm-hmm. like both of them occupy a similar space within his mind as a character and like within the story here. The the other piece I want to, unless you have like a quick comment to make, I just want to jump ahead to the no, influence we, of Togus's memories. We, we will revisit this very soon. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's 
like moving on to the next episode essentially here i i think it's interesting that so we get this everyone experiencing togus's memories to some extent so like the you know as you went over they like recover togus's memories while he's undergoing treatment so that the rest of section nine can know what happened during the raid and Immediately after viewing it, Bato is like extremely agitated and angry, and it is remarked upon that he is under the influence of Bato's emotions. But also it is remarked that the major is like not or or is cool headed or, you know, is making the right call, is able to to make the more like objective, I'm not under the influence of these emotions decision that Bato is disagreeing with as someone who's still affected by it. And I think it's important that the series, like for the scene that they they demark out, like the major does not seem to be unflu- under the influence of Togusa's emotions here because we are going to see her angry later in this episode. And I think the show wants you to know that that anger is not about what happened to Togusa. That is about what is happening to her and her body. So during the confrontation with the, I have to look at the, yeah, the JMSDF. I always want to say JSMDF, but it's in Japan. <laughs> the Japanese Navy. It's the Japan, yeah. Yeah, the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force, which is, is basically their Navy. So, you know, this narc squad somehow gets a hold of a, like, Navy... This is the most like humanoid mech. So within Japan, the term mecha refers to both like humanoid mechs like Gundams as well as like the Tachikomas would also be considered mecha. Even like the the detail, if you're getting into detail about the mechanics of a car, that is also mecha within like the broader phrase within Japan and within the US it like got applied to these humanoid mechs uh, but this is the first time that we like truly see something that would be from the the US perspective called a mech which is this power armor suit that the narc squad person gets into and there's this confrontation between Kusanagi and this like power suit style mecha and throughout it like it basically culminates with Major Kusanagi is about to be killed, like in this like very gruesome way. The mech is like trying to basically crush her. And there's even some like smashing, like the concrete gives way before her cyborg body does. We also get like a certain amount of there's this moment where it seems like she goes dead, mm-hmm. um, like her eyes go blank, which I think it is hinting towards what's going to happen later on towards the very end that like she has some sort of process going on that might be self-preservation but after this so i think it's saito who shoots it but is unable to pierce the armor with the this like high-powered weapon but it's enough to like stagger this mech off of her and then she's like give me the weapon like full-on rage again this is the angriest we have ever seen her we could read anger into her actions during like the organ theft plot that we talked about episodes ago. But even then there's like a certain coldness. There's a certain coolness. It's like, I am, I'm clearly going above and beyond, but I'm not displaying rage in the same way that she does in this moment where she's just pulling the trigger again and again. And like literally, you know, the armor is strong enough that it's not piercing to hit the guy inside, but it is indenting it. 
And so she's just like continually indenting the chest cavity of this power suit to like basically slowly suffocate the man inside who's like pleading for his life as she's doing it. And she just like continually is like cocking it again and shooting it. This is a a scene that in one hand is like incredibly scary of just like, oh my God, she's so full of rage and anger right now. And that also as a trans person is just like, Yes, like, fucking fight for your body, Kuzanagi. Like, this is your body. Like, he was about to kill you, and now he's pleading for his life. Like, no, don't show him mercy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so, like, you know, there is this, like, extreme cruelty, and yet at the same time, there's this weird... Like, I... I forget if I did it on the Ghost Divers account or if I did it on my personal account and like retweeted it, but it was like this meme of a GIF from one of your favorite anime. And I just did this because I was just like, like this, this is for me the moment where Major Kusanagi is like, this is my fucking body. And like, I, like, I have some sort of, like, we, we see this rage in her because it is something that in all the other stuff that she can be so cool and blase about here's like the moment where it actually matters to her. And it is like, this is the body that I've chosen that I have fought for. And like, I'm going to continue to fight for it in, and I'm going to be full of so rage that it was at risk in this moment in a way that it hasn't been anywhere else in the series to this extent that I'm just going to like, again, pull the trigger again and again. (laughs) I think the uh, the one other time that feels like comparable is when she's having the fight with Marcelo Jardy, uh, and he kind of ambushes her and gets her in that like that headlock, where yeah, he, and then she she like does the scream and kicks off. Yeah, she like yeah she ground. snaps his yeah. neck with like a like a kick or a punch or whatever. That's the one time where I like. I, I think there is. I think there is a, a parallel too. Um, where she just like lets out this scream there's still like a certain like terrifying like Bruce Lee it's a moment and it's over and then it's done Yeah, that like this scene has like again it is just we watch again and again as she like cocks it and shoots again there like there's definitely been moments where we've seen her fight for a body like this but this it feels exceptional to me in just how drawn out and like there's a certain point at which it's like clearly this is over and you are saved and yet you are still fighting for something and it is like this attachment that you have Mm -hmm. which we'll we'll get into more yeah i think um this is something that i'm like i've i've had this thought before but we've never gotten around to talking about it i think one of the things with kusanagi that um one of the defining aspects of her character is she is clearly a, a person who highly values like being in control just generally and i think that manifests like in a lot of different ways in her her personality and her actions and she is extremely good through her like just general like extreme competence in everything she's excellent at like being in control of almost every situation like all the time but there are these scattered instances where like that control is like threatened in ways that are extremely really dangerous like for her and then you see in those instances like there's this incredibly visceral reaction 
And I think that it it makes a lot of sense in terms of how like you've how we understand Kusanagi's character, especially given the analysis that like you know that we've that we've done um, over the last few episodes, where like yeah, this control is especially important for someone like Kusanagi. Yeah, I I will touch on this more when we get to the next episode and like how I think Kusanagi's desire for control also intersects with this like this theme of the need for control over one's own body or mm-hmm. bodily autonomy. But yeah, I know you have a few other comments for like these two episodes, so I'll, I'll let you finish before I, I do recap for 22. No, I think uh I think I'm actually good for us to move on to 22. There's, you know, there's some minor stuff, but uh, I guess, you know, nothing, just ground that we've already covered, like the ethics of surveillance, we see here again, like some highly questionable activities uh, by Section 9, where they're surveilling like the entire Japanese communications network, cross-checking to voice records, uh, and then using basically... Ishikawa is like using the cyber brains of old men in his like internet cafe to power as like da- data backups so they can run this massive like surveillance operation. It kind of reminded me of the, those, um, and we get the technical term wrong, so like whatever. But there's like malware out there that like uses your computer for Bitcoin mining or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, this is like if someone was doing that, but like in your brain um yeah that that sounds horrible but because you're playing pachinko yeah Yeah. but again you know we we see like part of you know ghost standalone complex is them just like slowly revealing like this almost catalog of horrors of like oh these dystopian horrors of like yeah cyber brains are a thing like here's all the terrible things that can happen when you have a cyber brain and uh so yeah, that was really my last main observation on those on those two. Yeah, it's also so like this surveillance network that they access is a favor that they're calling in from the American Empire's uh, CIA <laughs> because like the CIA is the one who actually has this surveillance network yeah, they, of satellites because they help the CIA conceal their like war war traumatized serial killer. <laughs> yeah, and it it is. Like, throughout these episodes, we see a bunch of callbacks to things that happened in previous episodes where they're like, oh, this thing happened and now we're calling in a favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I just want to highlight that there are other moments. You already mentioned Kanzaki, but, like, there are multiple moments where it's like, oh, that thing that happened in this one episode is now coming to fruition in some way. Um, or it's like it getting tied into the main plot. So, anyway, I'll, I'll jump to episode 22 now. So... This one I'm separating out in isolation just because I know I'm going to spend some time talking about demedicalization, which is this part of like especially trans liberationism. But I'll do the recap first. So this starts out with the head of the DEA being arrested because of, you know, the horrors that just happened. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there are a few members that remain at large. So. While Section 9 is investigating 
these corruptions and trying to look into the members that that are still out there acting independently to some degree. Aramaki is informed by a, a reporter while he's getting into his car that his long lost brother has been found and arrested on drug charges. Um, while this is happening, uh, and Aramaki begins to look into like what's going on, Major Kusanagi is going into the process of having her body swapped to replace that damaged body from the fight with the JMSDF power suit armor. At the basically both of these end up being revealed to be DAA ploys. So Aramaki is, you know, investigating the homeless or unhoused community where his brother supposedly lived, possibly actually did live as like a, you know, it the show never fully answers whether or not his brother was there or not, at least to my to my memory, mm. but ends up falling into the hands of two DEA members who are posing as homeless men um, and are saying like, yeah, we knew your your brother Yosuke. And what they end up doing is drugging Aramaki and the police are on their way. Bato basically steps in last minute to save Aramaki, but Aramaki is already drugged, which this is going to be a bit of a thing throughout some of like what transpires for a little bit is that uh, Aramaki is kind of out of commission. He'll be back in some of the later episodes, but like removing him as a, the strategic factor, I think is also an important part here. And at the same time, there's the scene happening with the major going through the body swap where that turns out to be the one other remaining DEA member who is posing as this female doctor who's doing the actual swap. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to put down here cause I'm going to talk about it a little bit more as we go on. I'm even going to leave a, a little space. I'm going to talk a little bit about themes of like sexual abuse, sexual harassment, rape, especially within a medical context, because there are definitely shades of that happening here. So if you want to skip that, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but here's the timestamp. 4036 to 4138. But basically what, what ends up happening here is Aoi shows up and frees Kusanagi from her restraints in exchange for Kusanagi allowing him to share his memories with her, which will become a significant part of the remaining ones. So Kusanagi accepts, is freed from the restraints, you know, surprises this DEA agent acting as a doctor and like knocks her out with a, a badass kick. And that's generally this, this episode. I, I think what interests me the most here, um, I, I know I think you'll get into a little bit of other stuff, but for me, from my perspective, a lot of it is what's going on with Major Kusanagi mm -hmm. and this process of a body swap. Um, there's some interesting moments. One of the the first ones is so during the body swap, you have a person who will observe it and like basically make sure that everything goes fine, which the major chooses her girlfriend who I believe is that same like nurse mm -hmm. for, that we saw from that, that organ one yeah. um, who gets drugged into falling asleep. There's like drugs in the coffee. And so she falls asleep and misses all of the horror that's happening. But before that, the, her girlfriend remarks on like, Oh, you, you chose the same model. Like it's the exact same body. Uh, you could pick any body you wanted. 
And Major Kusanagi is basically saying, eh, like, I don't care how it looks, which I think this show is going to disprove. But, like, I, I think throughout some of these episodes, we see Kusanagi asserting this almost masculine. We talked about earlier with the CEO and the Jameson model of this, like, the guy who buys the same pairs, uh, the same pair of shoes again when they wear out because it's like, eh, it worked before. Like, Kusanagi's at least. It like is providing that as an explanation here, even though I think what we're going to see in later episodes will suggest that that's maybe not actually the truth. Mm-hmm. But I I think it's significant that we get them like major, even while I think the truth is she's choosing the same body because this body means something to her. What she's saying in this moment is like, oh, I don't care how I look. I'm just like picking the same body because it worked, basically because yeah, of convenience. Um, yeah. And then throughout the so this is the big thing where I'm going to like get on my rant and get on my soapbox about trans liberationism. So there's definitely shades as I mentioned of sexual harassment and rape and abuse in a medical context here as this quote unquote doctor who's actually this DAA agent basically starts denying Major Kuzanagi her bodily autonomy is doing things so that she can't talk and, you know, playing with like, ooh, let's see what it looks like if I remove your ability to see the color green, things like that. There's a moment to this is like the most explicit. This is some sort of harassment thing where she's commenting on Major Kusanagi's body and like stroking her back. One, like in the broadest sense, this is an experience that trans people experience in the medical system. Not all the time, but cis-dominated healthcare has a lot of room for the abuse of trans people, and there are definitely reports of like explicit sexual abuse that occurs in there. It's like, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> just like putting that out there immediately. But this is also tying into broader ideas. So one of the big things when I am talking about trans liberationism is this idea of demedicalization. So... They're the the primary like traditional approach to trans healthcare is a medicalized one. It is one where you go through a process of getting a psychiatric di- diagnosis that says that you have what is called gender dysphoria disorder. And the way that you cure gender dysphoria, and I'm I'm putting heavy scare quotes on cure here, is currently the best, you know, treatment known is to go through hormone replacement, you know, surgery if you want it, things like that. And that in the end goal of this method of quote unquote treatment is essentially to pass as a cis person, you know, of the quote unquote opposite gender. This is this has been throughout like the history of trans healthcare, this has been the dominant mode. This is the traditional mode. Um, this is what a lot of national healthcare systems currently approach as like, this is the official way to access these treatments. There are a lot of issues with this. Uh, one is just cis people generally playing gatekeeper. So a cisgender person is on a council or is the psychiatrist or whatever who determines that someone is quote unquote transgender enough to get these treatments. There are a lot of issues with this because obviously 
cisgender people do not understand what it means to be trans and, you know, how to identify. And again, I'm putting huge scare quotes on here because from my perspective, this is like a bullshit idea, but how to identify someone who is trans enough to like undergo treatment. The demedicalist position obviously still allows access to medical treatments, but it is demedicalizing it because it does not view being trans as a medical condition, either physical or psychiatric. It views the actual problem that is occurring as like there's basically two twofold. One is the societal issue. It is the society is not treating you fairly for who you actually are. And the other is this approach that is viewing it more as an endocrine disorder rather than like a psychiatric gender dysphoria disorder. It is, you are saying that you are this gender and yet your body is not producing the hormones that you need given who you say you are. And so we are going to help you access treatments that will align your hormones in the same way that if, you know, within the traditional medical system, a cisgender woman just for some reason endocrine issue was producing way too much testosterone we would also help suppress that and like balance things out the way that that person wanted it is an approach that is saying what is happening is actually this thing of the hormones that your body are producing are not in line with who you actually are and so that's what we're going to correct from a medical perspective and the rest of it is the societal thing that needs to be corrected the most important part of this is that it focuses on body autonomy and it says that the trans individual is actually the person who understands who they are and who their body is and it you know i go to an informed consent clinic that does this approach that says hey what do you want from this treatment let us talk through let us figure out like the medications that we need let's talk through how is your transition going are you Reaching the end goal that is the end goal that you want, not the end goal that is being defined by some sort of medical community, but it is like literally what do you want to do with your body? How are we going to get there? And how are we going to make sure that you are still healthy, that you're not like having way too much potassium in the process? And we're, we're going to do blood tests just to make sure that like this isn't having other adverse effects that we might need to account for and balance for in other ways. And that perspective, when I went to that clinic... Before I'd even taken my first pill to, you know, of hormone replacement therapy, I was already receiving the treatment because I went to a medical institution where someone said to me, okay, like, I believe entirely who you are. I believe that you have this control over your body. I'm going to explain to you what the medications that we have will do to you. Make sure that you are aware of that and can understand like the risks involved. And it is up to you. This is your this is your body. This is your identity. We are giving the control over this to you within these like parameters of just like at, for me as someone prescribing this, I want to make sure that you're still being healthy and safe. And that is like literally the limit of me stepping in is just checking in on what's the other health so that if anything is going wrong, I can also help you address that. When that happened, that was already returning some sort of power to me that society had stripped from me as a trans person. It was returning some control over my body to me. And so, like, all of this is so tied up for me with this scene. 
where we see Major Kusanagi experiencing a medicalized approach to her body and a medicalized approach that is specifically focused on depriving her of control of her body. And again, it's because within the context of like, you know, the actual plot of the show, it is actually this DEA agent who is, you know, basically trying to kill her or like ruin her in some way. But it's so hard for me, especially, to see the scene and not read all of the, like, this is why demedicalization is important. This is why patient first, focusing on informed consent, maintaining bodily autonomy. How do you want your body to look? How do we get there? And I am just someone who is going to help you do that with, like, the medical knowledge that I have within this small limit of what you're trying to do, which is how are you trying to, like, do medical changes to your body and I'm only going to step in that far and everything else is self-determination. So that's, that's like this whole big thing. And then it also becomes interesting to me then when Aoi comes in and says, I'm going to return this bodily autonomy to you. If what you will do is take on or join me in the fight that I'm doing, that you become a part of this. And there's like, two readings of the scene for me one that is is major kusanagi being asked to train trade one autonomy for another trading the body for like whole sense of her memories this kind of gets tied in or referenced later like to some degree i think major kusanagi decides in that moment in fact my body is more important to me than necessarily all of my memories mm-hmm. and this is also a process that i think resonates at least with me personally as a trans person where in order to regain control of my body regain that autonomy to be able to take that away from society and take it for myself and present myself the way that I want to be and to define myself in the way that I want to define myself I have to in some way distance or push myself away from memories that I have of myself in the past where I did not understand that I was trans where who I was back then does not match who I seem to be now but who I seem to be now is somebody who I am able to control and define myself and that is more important to me than holding on to these previous memories that I have of myself a lot of trans people like I'm just putting this out here a lot of trans people have weird dissociated relationships with memories of their past selves and so, like, this is another thing where I'm like, there is a trade that's happening, and here it is literalized as always saying you have to do this. But I think a lot of trans people, to some degree, make this trade as well and say, like, who I am right now and defining who I am right now for myself is more important to me than a sense of purity over my previous memories and, like, keeping those intact as, like, happy and pure or something. It is also this thing that has resonances to me as well of someone coming in and saying like hey you seem to be like thinking about trans identity stuff and starting to play with it let me like introduce you to trans liberationism and (laughs) which is a thing that happened to me like let me like get you deep into queer theory and this is going to radically change you in one in one way but i'm doing it because in doing so i am granting you or I, I am helping you reclaim some sort of bodily autonomy. So this entire scene is just so like rife with those emotions for me that 
yeah, like this episode, like Major Kusanagi pulling the trigger over and over again. And then this episode where Major Kusanagi is like the system is trying to deny her of bodily autonomy and then she reclaims it and like, you know, goes on to do what's going to happen in the rest of the series is just like, yes, like this is <laughs> this is transresonance. This is like this is everything coming to fruition for me. So anyway, I don't know if you have any other thoughts or I can just go on to Aramaki and just like comment. <laughs> um well I think just to kind of like just to kind of add on to what you're saying, I think this is another um so many of these themes with like standalone complex are not I don't think we ever get like clear resolution like one way or another on a lot of these themes, which is part of what makes the series so interesting. You know, as as you were saying that, it occurs to me that, like, in, in a lot of ways, like, this is very satisfying. I mean, obviously, like, the major, like, freeing herself and not getting murdered is, like, extremely satisfying. There's this, but this dynamic with Aoi, like, as you're talking about, is kind of, um, there's ways you can read it that are, like, there's so many pathways that you can, or different interpretations you can take. I think one of the things that, uh, you didn't touch on, but it occurred to me was like, you know, there's there's obviously this exchange, and it's like, okay, you know, I'll return your bodily autonomy to you, but you have to take on these memories or like somehow dilute or complicate like the memories that you currently have. But in this instance, it's not like Kusanagi is taking on the memories of like someone else entirely. Not like a, it's not like an organic self-determining like this is a new like these are new memories that like i'm generating because i'm making a choice to like have this break with like my prior with my past it's like no i'm taking on like somebody else's memories like i'm being forced to take on the identity of like someone else entirely in a way that's not like organically derived from my own like personhood and choices there's also uh like just to tie in with here there's a certain visual that stuck with me of when Awe uploads the memories to Kusanagi it is specifically Awe represented as like blue in like the wireframe his body and Kusanagi in pink and it is like blue flowing into pink which also feels to some degree violative mm-hmm. especially from this like trans reading of kusanagi as accepting like of reaffirming like this sense of gender that she has that yeah it, it is complex it, it is not fully like i have this positive reading of it but there are definitely other things in here where you can read something slightly more again like what was the the word that i just said just like weirdly like invasive yeah. or uh, something about what Awe is doing here as well. Yeah, and my intention is not at all to like assail the like positive reading because I think like I think I am like in your camp. There's another aspect of this for me that's kind of like I'm trying to think of a way to put this. I think there's sometimes these like dynamics, and again, you would know more about this than I would, so I'm just gonna throw this out there, and then if you have thoughts on it, like I'll let you elaborate. Um, but I think there's sometimes these dynamics between like these broader leftist movements like these anti-capitalist movements um yeah i know i see this sometimes with like in like socialist discourse where it's like you know no trans liberation under capitalism 
And I think sometimes in that dynamic, like we could read this as dramatizing, like Alloy being like this kind of, I don't know if I would call him anti-capitalist or like a clear revolutionary ideology, but definitely like revolutionary against this like corrupt system in general. And then being like, yeah, like I'll give you your bodily autonomy, but like you regaining your bodily autonomy is like contingent on like being part of this like broader like leftist or leftist, not that's not fair, but this broader like revolutionary thing that I'm doing where it's like, oh yeah, in order for you to have like your bodily liberation as like a trans person, you also have to be like part of like the broader like anti-capitalist or like socialist or whatever movement. So that's kind of how like when I was watching it and when you were talking, I was also considering that that side of it and that reading. Yeah, there's a I think one of the the reasons why I read the ending of the series overall as actually kind of like bleak and depressing is that we'll get to this more as it goes on, but I think the opposite becomes the case that like always revolutionary impulse is subjugated to some sort of like let us fight it from within the system mm-hmm. um and like kuzanagi wins out here in a way where you know at this point i've started rewatching second gig and we'll we'll do it later on i have not gotten till to the end of second gig but my memory of it which i could be wrong is that it ends with a greater deal of realization of some sort of revolutionary potential or at least rejection of the idea that revolutionary uh, revolution or like the achievement of some sort of utopia is possible within the system that Kusanagi is operating mm-hmm. in. If I remember correctly, I think she ends up like leaving section nine at the end, which for someone whose identity at this point seems so wrapped up in I am the major is like such a huge step. But I, again, like I could be totally wrong. Who knows? So I don't even know if this is, I guess, I guess we'll find out <laughs> like, when we do second gig. Yeah. We'll be talking about it. Like, um, hey, you, you remember that when you were wrong? Like when we were talking yeah, about. Yeah. Remember when I was really wrong? <laughs> Yeah, at the very least, I remembered exploring it more. Maybe I'm wrong about how it resolves, but it's one of those reasons why I also want us to go touch on second gig, even though now that I'm rewatching it, I think my rosy memory of it is a little bit more flawed than than I had. So that's also why I could be like totally wrong with how it ends. So yeah, w- without getting into that, we'll save that for later. But yeah, I, I guess we can move on a little bit here. I know you have a little bit more about Aramaki. One thing that just stood out here was, I believe this was the quote from Aramaki, mm-hmm. uh, something like, I thought that justice was carrying out duties no matter what, even if it meant turning against loved ones. This is a very, like, this is a very telling quote for Section I as a whole and Aramaki, I think. There is like this growing doubt in the ability to enact justice within the system. But again, I think the show will ultimately like reassert that kind of approach to justice in a way that to me is very bleak. But uh, it, it is interesting to me here that Aramaki expresses this around his long lost brother, Yosuke. Uh, yeah, I think that point that you just raised is really significant and I will return to it. 
especially in our discussion of the last episode, because I have a reading that I think in some ways is even more bleak or extreme. I will say, like, the return of Kanzaki in this episode, I don't think we touched on it, but basically uh, Aramaki encounters Kanzaki in, in the elevator as the situation is heating up, where Section 9 is, like, working their way up the ladder of government in this exposing corruption, um, and the government is preparing to basically crush them. And Kanzaki encounters, uh, actually, he forces this encounter with Aramaki in the elevator and basically like, warns him, hey, you know, the person that you're, like, first of all, this is the person who's responsible, and that person has some connections with the Japanese Navy, and you're, you know, you're basically in deep shit, uh, so watch out. And uh, I just think this is significant because touching on the discussion that we had of the previous episodes, Kinsaki is a character who was part of the the corrupt uh, institutional apparatus. He was especially corrupt, it is noted, um, when he's introduced. And he is forced, some kind of forced slash convinced to admit his corruption. And here we see him, instead of acting with, uh, reacting with anger, at Aramaki, who forced him to to admit his involvement in this or his his misinformation and ruined his political career, he's actually going out of his way to aid Aramaki. In I'll put scare quotes around it, but nominally in in his pursuit of justice. Yeah, he's the one who gives this name Yakashima, which we're going to talk about more with the next episode. Yep. Who's the the secretary general and is like the the ringleader of all of this corruption. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, this takes me back to uh, what I'm going to posit loosely as Aoi's model of institutional change, where he seems to think that the culprits of corruption can be persuaded or convinced of the injustice of their actions, then they may actually, they, they may reform themselves and become part of, of this pursuit of justice in a way that's almost, um, it, it harks back to this this kind of laughing man phenomenon, the spread of ideology. Um, he seems to feel like there, there's this version of uh, reform from within, from within the system that Aoi seems to gesture at. And here we see this kind of teased, like, is this really possible? Can Is it possible to convince the corrupt to support justice and, and change their ways? Is it possible for this to even happen within the confines of the system? So that's another just touch point for, for this this bigger theory we're building to later. And then I would just say um, there's there are a lot of references to the earlier Armaki quotation about like how uh, Section 9 is not it's not a team. It's not about team play. It's about grandstanding or uh, grandstand plays by individuals which is this like baseball metaphor. Don't want to really talk about the mechanics of baseball right now. Um, but here we see this kind of complicated where the grandstand players are like saved again and again by team plays. Kuzanagi, for example, about to be killed by the power, the power armor. And Saito shows up with that like 50, this like high powered rifle and saves her. We see Bato like coming through for for Aramaki when Aramaki is trying to do this like like oh I'm gonna go like crack this case on my own 
and gets totally kidnapped and taken down and Bato like uh, comes through for him. So uh, this, it definitely complicates uh, Aramaki's conception of like how section nine works and how like institutions seem to work. So teamwork is very important. <laughs> yeah, this will also both teamwork in general, as well as the baseball metaphor will, will come up at the end as well. So I think before we go to episode 23, I think it's a good moment for me to do some quick theory bullshit to kind of, hell yeah, <laughs> to kind of orient further discussion. Um, it's not just me. No, it's, I, I, yeah, I'll also do, do some theory bullshit. So the viewers are mad at me as well. Um, or the listeners, I should say. Okay. So, um, recently, actually I was doing some, some reading for work and somehow I stumbled upon this, this text by an author named Arthur Kessler, who's a, a fairly famous novelist. Some people may be familiar with. He has this uh, text called The Ghost in the Machine that was published in 1967. And I don't know how I started upon, how I happened upon this really. But when I did, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And eventually I discovered that the author of, the creator of Ghost in the Shell, uh, Masamune Shiro, actually uh, named the series after this book. And that this book is... A major kind of touchstone for for the series. Um, so I went out and I read this like nearly four hundred page book of like psychology slash philosophy, and I can confirm it is pretty useful uh, in terms of understanding some of the themes of Ghost in the Shell. I bring it up for the sake of like any viewer, any uh, listeners who might be interested in exploring this. If you're really interested in Ghosts in the Shell, uh, this is a really cool book to read. And also, it's just a book that I think is interesting generally. So anyway, one of the main theses that Kessler puts forward in the book is that all of reality, and just speaking specifically about humans, consists of basically these interrelated systems of components that are simultaneously part and whole. Uh, which he calls holons. And uh, in his reading, part of an inescapable part of being human is that you are simultaneously a whole unto yourself, but also inextricably like a part of larger systems. Uh, and that this relation is like a significant part of determining how we act. I bring again, I bring this up because, I think a lot of our discussions previously have been like around this theme that we've perceived in Ghost in the Shell, specifically like the coming together of different consciousnesses, the uh, this tension between like retaining your individuality and then and merging with others, especially in like cyberspaces and how cyberspaces in the show make this possible to a greater extent than had previously. Uh, existed um i think in a lot of ways uh, and then uh, kessler like he has a lot of other access to grind in this book it's like a polemic against like 60s psychology um and it's also a larger analysis of like social pathologies and unrest 
But basically, I'll just give a quick quotation here in which he he's kind of setting out the way that he obliterates this distinction between, or obliterates the concept of individual. He says, an individual is usually defined as an indivisible self-contained unit with a separate independent existence of its own. But individuals in this absolute sense are nowhere found in nature or society, just as we nowhere find absolute wholes. Instead of separateness and interdependence, there is cooperation and interdependence running through the whole gamut, from physical symbiosis to the cohesive bonds of the swarm, hive, shoal, flock, herd, family, and society. And in uh, a later quotation, he talks about how uh, holons, of which humans are a, a form, uh, have self-assertive and uh, integrative tendencies. The self-assertive tendency is a dynamic manifestation of a holon's unique wholeness, autonomy and independence as a unique thing, essentially. Whereas its equally universal antagonist, the integrative tendency, expresses its dependence on the, on the larger whole to which it, it belongs. So um, in a way, you can really read the entirety of this series as kind of like a gloss or a response to, to Kessler's theories. We see them dramatized in a lot of ways, not only in the larger these larger tensions about integrating of all human minds in cyberspaces through technology such as cyberbrains, but we also see it dramatized in institutions, specifically in the drama of Section 9, uh, which we've talked about, we've kind of hinted at before, where you can read Standalone Complex as a story of the dislocation of Section 9 from the governmental apparatus and then the, the kind of the reintegration. So uh, I just want to throw that out there because I'll be touching on it. I'll be relying on it again very soon. But uh, this, these, this tension between humans themselves, human society, and then human institutions being composed of these autonomous parts that are um, simultaneously individuals, but also like parts. And then the way that the, the assertive tendency of these individuals and an integrative tendency of them kind of clash uh, seems to be a big, uh, a very useful uh, frame of reference, uh, including in episode 23. So thank you for bearing with me there. I will go ahead and do... Let's go back on our <laughs> I will go ahead and do the, the recap of episode 23. In episode 23, um, we return to Ernest Serrano who was the victim of the original Laughing Man incident. Uh, if you're watching along, you know, this uh, won't, you won't require any further elaboration there. The Laughing Man again kidnaps Serrano, and they return to the same cafe where they had previously uh, gone and, and debated during their, you know, two-day sojourn in the original Laughing Man event. Um, so they go, they go to this Starbucks... Sorry, Star Child. Star, Star, Star Child. Child. Um, no trademark violations here. Um, yeah, just just good old fashioned two thousand one. Yeah, it's uh, Victorian bedrooms all all around all over the place. So uh, they go to the same cafe and they basically discuss the uh, before, during, and after of their last meeting. While this is happening. Um, Section 9 continues their investigation, and uh, eventually Serrano basically reveals why he didn't fulfill his promise, his original promise to the Laughing Man to um, 
you know, to expose the conspiracy behind suppressing the Mirai vaccine, we learn that he he has basically been he himself has been suppressed and surveilled by the government and by these uh, uh, kind of nefarious actors, specifically Yakushima, and that he was actually um, victimized in his own way as a result of this. After he uh, reveals this in the course of conversation with quote unquote the Laughing Man, there's a, a raid, a kind of race to Serrano between Section Nine and the in the DEA, and uh, it is eventually revealed that Kusanagi, the Laughing Man, is actually Kusanagi posing as a Laughing Man, um, luring Serrano into like giving them this information, and in the process, uh, convincing Serrano to testify against uh, Yakushima. I I know you have uh, some comments here. This is a, a a very interesting episode with a great twist ending. So I'll, I'll let you uh, straight things off. Yeah. So one, you know, I, I wrote up the bit of like the notes for the recaps here. And throughout this, I even texted you before we met up that I want to be intentional about us saying Aoi as distinct from the laughing man. Mm-hmm. And so like within my recap saying the laughing man kidnaps Ernest Serrano is because I'm still preserving that, that distinction um, that, part of it is like Awe himself stating I never took that name on myself but also as we alluded to earlier this like distinction that's happening between the original that is Awe and then the copy without an original that is the laughing man um and that like Kuzanagi is stepping into this role for I I think the most interesting thing for me in this episode is the way that Major Kuzanagi and her similarity, even just visually speaking, to Aoi is what makes this twist possible. And of course, this is intentional on the part of the show creators. It is something that is going to be, I think, pulled out further as we continue to talk about it. So I don't want to get into a bunch of detail here because I, I think when we talk about the last episode, that's where like everything hits to the greatest extent. But it is still interesting to me that, like, when we see Awe in the, you know, home for the the kids with cyber brain closed shell syndrome, that parallel with Kuzanagi is not obvious. It is in this moment that the show begins to, like, truly emphasize it. When you first see Awe in the, you know, the wheelchair with the left uh, hand catcher's mitt, it is... In, in that moment, Awe f- does not feel like it, they're directly trying to make you think of in terms of his design and everything Kuzanagi. And I, I think it's like interesting and masterful that this show is able to have the same basic character design, at, but only in these moments make you realize the similarity to like this extent. And... Again, I'll get into it more later, but like to already point towards it, there is this sense of androgyny that like I think in the the movies Ghost in the Shell, the major is more overtly portrayed as androgynous and it like I think it is intentional in the show that she is more feminine because I again as I talked about earlier, I think the movies are more about like a sense of gender dysphoria, whereas this feels more gender euphoria and assertion of one's own identity on the part of Kuzanagi. But this is where that androgyny really enters. 
and I'll go into this more later, but this like already we can start to see both Major Kusanagi and Aoi as like the end conclusion of some earlier androgyny. And again, I'll talk about that more later. So so we can move on. I, I think the other part here is again this like this interesting notion that is happening here where at the same time that we see Aoi and this discussion of some sort of like quote unquote original laughing man and original laughing man event. Um, what is truly happening is actually the assertion of the copy without an original that is Kusanagi is the laughing man that it feels distinct from Aoi and also is distinct from Aoi because of like Aoi retreating from his actions because he was stopped by corruption that that corruption was too powerful or too great for him to be able to overcome as the hacker that reveals and that it is Kusanagi who's able to carry on this attempt but there's also this sense of uh, again as the series progresses that like some sort of in that that melding some sort of revolutionary potential is being subsumed this is part of what's like so bleak to me is that it it feels like the true revolution can't happen within the society that all that can happen is subsuming that push into a like fight it from within system mm-hmm. which, that kuzanagi is representing here and is able to push forward which we see also with arguably the first like I mean, the, the creation of, like, the Laughing Man phenomenon being, like, a capitalist ploy of, like, Aoi doing this thing. And then, like, the, the system as such, like, these, like, powerful capitalist interests, like, using, like, spinning that into, like, the quote-unquote, like, the Laughing Man in order to, like, do this tremendous corruption wealth like shifting wealth upwards type scheme where they're stealing from public funds and like doing bailouts for corporations and whatnot i i think uh, i'll let you get to your notes the one other thing i want to just touch on here which is again like we'll talk about this more later but i think the show's already setting up um there's this during the conversation between kuzanagi is laughing man and serrano the laughing man asked Serrano if he would use the micro-machine treatments for himself if he had cyberbrain sclerosis, and he says yes. And then the laughing man asks, would you do it for your kids? Would you use the micro-machine treatment? And it's then that he hesitates. And it is here that Kuzanagi, again, this laughing man is Kuzanagi, makes the statement of pride and sentiment are two separate things. It is, well, and I guess some of it is the recounting of the memory, so it's like, it's mixed, but it's hard for me to not read this as some sort of mixing of Aoi and Kuzanagi, Mm -hmm. and this is going to factor in, I think, a lot with what has been happening with Bato and with, like, the relationship between Kuzanagi and Bato. The idea of sentiment is going to recur, and I, I think it is interesting that one of the moments of it being introduced as, like, sentiment expresses some greater degree of truth mm-hmm. than pride is being expressed here by the laughing man who is in this moment in this conversation in this recounting some sort of mingling of kuzanagi and Aoi, because it's going to like 
further push at some of the conversations and I think Kuzanagi's attempt to eschew or push away this idea, uh, this idea of sentimentality um, and in the end kind of admit to it uh, as the actual truth of the matter. Um, but at this point, I'll, I'll let you take over. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so here uh, in this episode also, I kind of mentioned this in the recap, but we, we see the full sequence of the original like quote-unquote Laughing Man event where Aoi kidnaps Serrano and followed him around like for two days, just debating him about, you know, his life and the state of the world. And we see one like extended sequence where Aoi, similar to his conversation with Imakurusu, is basically call is calling out Serrano's culpability for this corruption scheme. And in, in the course of this uh, Serrano kind of runs through all of these like standard rationalizations that that you would expect. Um, the first being, oh well, you know, I, I'm not responsible for the Department of Health. I'm not responsible for the Drug Approval Board. Like I don't control that. I'm just a medical equipment manufacturer. We just like you know we just make our products. Like we don't control this this system. And then going to the Amakurusu argument of like, oh, well, this this technology had more potential in the long run, um, so on and so forth. And then uh, finally having to uh, not having an answer for Aoi when Aoi confronts him with this statement, something to, uh, to the effect of like, if you like, you knew that this was going to be rubber stamped, like you knew that this was like that the result of this process would be this corrupt uh, approval of your drugs and the denial of the Mirai vaccine, and yet you went along with it anyway. Uh, doesn't that make you responsible? Um, at which point he he kind of like feigns compliance, like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll reveal the truth. And then as soon as Alloy like releases him from this like quote unquote brain dive, he's essentially being like ghost hacked, it's implied. Then uh, the the kind of the real like reasoning uh, seems to be revealed where Serrano says, um, "Well, as a man who protects his assets, uh, I can't do what you're asking because it would mean the the ruin of my my company." And I think again, this is like the next step in this kind of dialogue that we see in these final episodes, addressing culpability of individuals um, and institutions the way in which institutions exert force on the people that constitute them uh, in order to carry out this, what you could term the, like the will of the institution or the status quo. I think one of the like emergent themes here is uh, this need for uh, individuals to break with the collective and with the institutional imperative uh, in order to actually create change. Because there is this strong ideological and, I mean, physical, as we see with military operations against Section 9, um, there are all these different fo uh, forms of force that institutions use on their constituents to, to enforce conformity or compliance. And one of the things that is, is portrayed here is the need for individuals to, to break from them. There's a quotation later on that I'm kind of taught I'm kind of uh, thinking of what you of your point about the merging of Aoi and Kusanagi 
because um, I believe this is Kusanagi uh, speaking later when she says, oh, well, the evil that lurks in this world exists on a higher level. So, you know, I thought it was originally Serrano who, who is corrupt and or the Drug Enforcement Board. But actually, it's, you know, the corruption existed at this much higher level that was in, in a way overwhelming. And I think that this is, again, to like bring up Kessler, we've previously in the podcast we've talked a lot about like the the utopian potential and the transhumanist potential of individuals coming together uh, of like the integration of individuals um, and like the kind of the diminishment or the abolition of this boundary uh, of the concept of individual in, in favor of a more like collective consciousness or uh, form again like most ghost in the shell themes like i think it's really complicated here in a way that's not exactly clear by the by the idea of like what happens when the collective is evil <laughs> um you you then have you know suddenly there is a new there's this imperative for uh for dissent and difference and distinction uh and individual assertion and when i was reading kessler like there was a quotation that in his part three of his book where he talks about social pathologies that really stood out to me in relation to this, where he says, um, he's talking about the misconceptions of when people are trying to understand why these wars and human conflict occurs. And uh, in his analysis, uh, he he says, one of the main misconceptions for uh, man's predicament is often said to be selfishness, greed, etc., the aggressive, self-assertive tendencies of the individual. But instead, the point that I shall make is that selfishness is not the primary culprit. Instead, what appeals to man to man's better nature, or appeals to man's better nature are ineffectual, because the main danger lies precisely in what we would want to call his better nature. And by that, he means the integrative, collaborative tendency. Uh, in other words, I would like to suggest that the integrative tendencies of the individual are incomparably more dangerous than his self-assertive tendencies. Part of his overall thesis is that these two things of necessity exist in balance. But here there's this kind of, in a book that's so much about the potentiality of humans integrating and about the um, kind of uh, philosophical like dubiousness of our reliance on the concepts of individualism uh, this is kind of a shocking passage, but uh, this this sequence and really like all of these final episodes are strongly reminiscent of this for me, where we're dealing with the, the issue of a, a system that is corrupt and, you know, being integrated into a corrupt system in a way that is stable uh, is, is highly problematic. So individuals suddenly become necessary to to challenge and to change the institutional structure. Um, yeah. You, go ahead. You, you talking about this is again, like me hearing you talk about this is making me think more about trans liberationism as like, I, I think one of the, the things that when you really get deep into trans liberationism that you have to square is also to some degree, this balance of the individual versus the collective, because so much of trans liberationism starts at this point of the, individual asserting the self in the face of 
a hegemonic structure of cis-heteronormative patriarchy, essentially. It is saying here is what society has, uh, like the role that society has said that I must fill because of the configuration of my genitals at birth. And I have to assert myself in the face of this. And that is a that is a push against certain collectivism because that collectivism is dangerous and harmful to the the individual in question. And also like at, when you become trans, it is so hard to not I mean I'm there are definitely people who do this. I I have this policy of not like throwing trans people under the bus because plenty of people are willing to do it for me. So I'm not gonna name names. But like there are definitely people who come out as trans and are still like Republican or whatever. Fuck. <laughs> um, but but I think like to truly em- embrace being trans and also like the the greater extents of trans liberationism has to push at something else beyond that, and it is a realization that these systems that exist are systems that like you cannot be complicit in or be a part of that system that you have to assert some individuality. But the second step of this, and I think this is where, you know, you might have a little bit more to talk about episode 23, but also when we get to episode 24 and 25, I'm going to talk about things before we get to the Tachikomas. Um, But to me, the Tachikomas are like the greatest glimmer of hope in this series. Mm -hmm. And it is because they are something that emerges from that collectivist or that like that collectivist in the sense of like, a unified I am a part of a system and begin to develop individuality that begin to assert that in defiance of the system that they were like the purpose that they were built to be weapons. They begin to assert something else. And again, I think the show is intentional at coloring that as a communist thing and as also coloring that as what emerges and what is like hopeful about the Tachikomas is individuals who are organizing as separate individuals who are coming to some sort of collective organization, like as an agreement between individuals as separate from this like group think that they originally emerged from. This is a thing that again, without too much jumping ahead, there are comments in episode 24 and 25 of like, Oh, Hey, we are all literally individuals. Like we don't sync at all anymore. And yet we all had the same thought of it seems like section nine is in danger and we need to do something to, to help them. And like, we are still all arriving at this conclusion and the, the great naivety and like failure of the Tachikomas to some degree is that like the limits of what they can perceive right now is like, let's save Bato because Bato is nice to us (laughs) (laughs) rather than like a greater revolutionary impulse. And yet they are still, I think representing something that is like hopeful. And that also in the final episode, Kusanagi, I think points to as something hopeful of like, how do, how does the individual reemerge from this? And that like the ideal is some sort of thing towards what the Tachikomas had mm-hmm. that the, the ideal is actually towards, and th- this then again, like to tie in with trans liberationism, there is no way that the trans population in isolation can actually push forward the changes they want. Like even within a democratic system, the population is too small. Mm-hmm. Trans liberation happens through community organizing through collectivism through building alliances and allegiances with other groups it is it is through the recognition and the emphasis of intersectionality and through the ways that 
we are all oppressed by interlocking systems that transliberationism can then gather the forces to actually enact change. And again, this show like falls short of showing that. And that's part of why it's so bleak to me. But I, I think that's also where some of the hope of that's like represented by Tachikoma comes in as well as what's going on with major Kusanagi is like, Currently, that it is impossible to actually reform the system in a meaningful way or like overturn the system. But the hope that exists is in some sort of organizing between individuals with their own goals coming together to agree to something that is better than what currently exists. And again, we don't actually see that at the end of the show, truly. Yeah. But um, it's. Like there are these moments where I think the show is pointing towards it and it's like the moments of hope that this show has, despite how fucking bleak I find it overall I, I <laughs> as a show that I love. <laughs> I think there is, again, like we keep going back. I, we keep being confronted with these tensions. I think one of the like overarching tensions is this, like, I think in some significant ways, like the show really calls into question the possibility of attaining that type of reform, like fundamentally, while at the same time, very clearly opening spaces of hope, which like, I, I agree, I, th- I think are important to like, hang on to, but do, at least in my reading, and I think yours as well, like, exist in this clear, like tension with uh, a skeptical a skepticism about like the possibility of attainment. And I think as one like final comment before you go to 24 and 25, you know, a lot of Kessler's like theory and, and I think reflected here is a lot of his theory deals with consciousness in general or all life, but consciousness as well being something that is emergent and changing and growing constantly and the nature of a unity or the nature of a collective is that in some way it is uh, totalizing. In, in one way or another, like to some degree, um, there is a totalizing impulse. There's also a unifying impulse, which is necessary. But that, for that reason, it, needs, uh, it is kind of of necessity. It locked in the balance with like, the difference that is manifested uh, by individuals that creates the possibility for this like growth and emergent change, new new emergent forms of consciousness, or maybe things that are not entirely new, but like forms of consciousness that were like suppressed or unable to be articulated, need to be able to like emerge organically. So there's this constant tension there where like to go back to your example of like you know democratic politics for example. You know, if we tomorrow were able to arrive to like arrive at a consensus of like, yep, like here is our like collective politics of liberation for like what we know in like late 2020, and this is like justice, we could form like a system that reflected that, that may in like 30 years, as humanity changes, may in 30 years well be like oppressive in like in some way or another or in and perhaps it would of, nece- of necessity be like oppressive in some way or another so again like there's this this weird uh dynamic 
<laughs> that's going on there. Yeah. So I, I guess we can move on at this point to episodes 24 and 25. There, there is a lot here. This is the reason why I want to talk about these together is just the fact that I want to, there's overlap happening and I want us to be able to like fully separate out. Let's talk about the major and, and our body from like what's happening with the Tachikomas from like other parts. And this is one where there's just more connective tissue um, between the two. But uh, I'll do my best to do a quick recap here. So towards the beginning of episode 24, uh, the Secretary General Yakashima has learned of Section 9's plans to uncover a scandal in his corruption. And so he begins to leak information about the group to the press and specifically coloring it in a way to try to incite public opinion to demand for Section 9 to be disbanded as this like secretive group. Aramaki takes the case that they currently have against uh, Yakushima to the prime minister, but the prime minister is unsure of his ability to actually remove Yakushima from power and have him tried for his crimes, um, especially with the election coming up. So there's like a lot of electoral politics factoring in here. (laughs) Um, Or it's like, look, there's going to be an election in like three months. Can we just chill until then? And basically this plan is put forth and Aramaki reluctantly agrees to it that Section 9 is going to be quote unquote disbanded, which what that means is pretty horrifying, as we'll see, um, in order to try and improve the party's image. And so then hopefully the prime minister will will win re-election and be able to actually mount this like move against Yakushima. Um, I'm not going to get into the full details of how this is working. Just trust me when I say this is like the plan. Um, <laughs> and so as Aramaki and Togusa are leaving, they've been traveling together. They are like basically immediately arrested. Um, this plan is already going underway. Aramaki sends a warning to Major Kuzunagi and the rest of Section 9 to like basically protect themselves, save themselves at all costs. Like your your mission is to survive. <laughs> Um, I'm being arrested now. Bye. Um, And so what proceeds is this extended sequence of Section 9 attempting to escape from the Umibozu, which is this secret elite black sop unit um, that is part of the JMSDF. They have a bunch of those power armor mecha units. So, you know, one of them was already a challenge for for Major Kuzanagi, and now there's, there's a bunch of them. I'm not going to go through all of the steps of the escape. Uh, I think the, you know, I already alluded to going to talk about Major's body. And so there's this terse conversation that occurs between Bato and the Major as they're escaping through the uh, sewer system where Bato is demanding to know why is she attached to her body? Why is this watch so important to her? And it's it's kind of a like shitty move on Bato's part, honestly, like the the way that he pushes it, but obviously ends up paying off in the long run section nine is gradually hunted down one by one we do see some scenes of i think it's saito and ishikawa who leak these seeds the major gave them of Mm -hmm. information ishikawa has a great moment and is like pachinko parlor with it and then you know basically everyone other than major kusanagi and bato have been captured and bato goes out of you know, his sentimentality to the major's house to try to recover this watch from her nightstand. In the earlier conversation, he asks her, why aren't you wearing it? And she's like, oh, I forgot it at home and ends up in a firefight with Umibozu, uh, manages to take out the 
main soldiers at that point most of the the mechs have pulled out but there are still two left um he does take out one of the mechs and basically about to be killed by the other one when the tachikomas who we've we've seen you reuniting throughout these episodes uh swoop in in the last moment save bato through this like collectivist action of you know all of them teaming up against this mech in order to do this self-sacrifice. Bato is at that moment reunited with the major who is in this like younger body that she has. She takes him back to her safe house, which overlooks section nine. They have this moment of intimacy around her watch. And in the very final ep- moments of the episode, we watch the major Kuzanagi be assassinated by a sniper while Bato shouts out uh, Moroko, which is like, <laughs> you know, how the final episode starts. But I, I'm breaking off that episode as a separate thing here, just in the interest of like giving us some chunks to chew on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'll start off here with like my one note, because I know you have some stuff you want to say at the very top for this this episode. And uh, like my little part leading in here, a just interesting line from Aramaki when the prime minister is talking about let's disband section nine is like having a team that will obey me without thinking is wealth itself, which just like really struck me as a show dealing with capitalism and also with this like sense of loyalty, the sense of justice, like Aramaki earlier talking about justice being obeying orders, even if it meant turning against my loved ones. And here it's like, there is this on one hand, having people who obey me is power. And yet also there's this like fondness that Aramaki, like to some degree, section nine is Aramaki's loved ones as well. So yeah, I don't have a ton to say on that. It was just a line that really stood out to me. And I think we'll, we'll hopefully help me spike the ball to you (laughs) and you are smart smart metaphors yes that's like that's like that's like what um volleyball volleyball? yeah 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 i played that once (laughs) there's a really great anime about volleyball that we could do at some point um haikyuu but anyway no that the uh the bare metaphor would be like you're set you're setting it for me like setting is when you like tap it up in the air and then the spiker comes and just like crushes it yeah yeah so yeah great great set (laughs) so uh i think here is like the culmination of one of these narrative arcs which is section nine is fully finally dislocated from the government you know they're they're liquidated literally like actually liquidated and uh all arrested and i think here uh we see the again this tension between like constituent parts of an institution and an institution itself section nine arguably has become uh, excessive in its self-assertion instead of its integrative tendency to fall in line it is uh, too uh, assertive in pursuing its own objectives um, and as a result it is being suppressed on the other hand to go back to your to your great set aramaki's insistence on trust is very interesting he, he kind of hems and haws about like section nine being liquidated and you know he gives this reason of like it would never I can never rebuild this this unit because I've worked for so long to like build up this trust essentially where my team trusts me to the extent that they follow my orders without thinking 
it uh, I'm not posing this as an absolute by any means. I think there's a way that you can read this. Uh, um, if you wanted to do like an institutional reading, you could see Section 9 as, as kind of a model of a functional institution where all of the all of the components, all of the individuals are like balanced perfectly. And in this kind of well-oiled machine where Aramaki performs his role as the leader in such a way that all of everyone can trust him unconditionally and follow, you know, follow his commands um, and so on and so forth down the line. Everybody is in perfect balance and sync with one another. Um, and I think that's kind of the subtext of like Aramaki's, uh, the, the pain. Um, obviously there's a sentimentality as well, like a humanity to this, to this decision. But to that extent, I think we can, you know, interpret Aramaki's like comments in that way. And, uh, you know, to take it a step further, uh, we can see Section 9 potentially as like a functional unit uh, within a dysfunctional system. Of course, we have to consider like all of the horrible things that we've seen Section 9 do as part of it, its role in the system. But unto itself, there's this seemingly a contrast between the way Section 9 operates and, and the way that like everything else we see about government in these final episodes and in the series generally. And uh, one of the things that I actually, I think you're going to have a lot to say about this. Maybe it's my turn to set for you. The And the conversation uh, during the escape from Umibozu, there is this conversation between Kusanagi and Bato where um, not only does Bato like very invasively demand explanations <laughs> about <laughs> um you know uh her body and you know her choices surrounding her, bo- her body but he also um they kind of veer off into talking about their reasons for being in section nine um where kusanagi questions bato i was in i was intrigued watching this because i remember i think a couple episodes ago you had brought up a point that i didn't consider I hadn't considered previously, which is that Kusanagi's um, membership in Section 9 allows her to have access to these prosthetics, you know, the like state-of-the-art prosthetics, the maintenance, um, and all of that. And actually here she even says that, where she's like, oh, well, Section 9 to me is just a means to an end, like where I can get all of the state-of-the-art equipment, uh, and now I just need to find another sponsor. I think that is a bluff. Um, because I think we can argue that Kusanagi identifies strongly with Section 9 and what they do. I think there's a very, very strong identification there that she's, like, intentionally downplaying here to kind of turn the tables on Bato and be like, oh, like, oh, are you sentimental, Bato? Like, don't tell me you're, like are you know are getting weepy about section nine like well, we can just go and get a new a new sponsor for our like sweet equipment so uh i thought that was um a pretty interesting comment i also think there's the the fact that it's state-of-the-art equipment that she wants meaning like military-grade stuff um which like again there's something like additional about wanting like military-grade prosthetics versus just like I want these prosthetics that are like, you know, enough for me to like fulfill, to like actualize, you know, myself and like the kind of body that I want. 
And then obviously paired with her comments about her body, where she's saying, oh, I have no attachment to this. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of bluffing from Kusanagi here um, for some reason. I don't know if, I don't know what your, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, this might be a good time to like play the audio, which I'm going to drop in. So section nine is finally finished, huh? All the blood and sweat we poured into it just went poof up in smoke. Yeah. Free access to the latest maintenance and cutting-edge equipment was a sweet setup, but when you get down to it, that's all it really was. The only thing we need to do is find a new sponsor. Or is there something else? Have you got some kind of attachment to the place, Bato? Hmm, not if you put it like that. If anything, it's the good and bad times we had, all the memories. Memories? That's awfully sentimental of you. And while we're on the subject, that reminds me, where's that watch you're usually wearing? I had to pick today to leave it next to my bed at my safe house. Since they've hit section 9, they've probably got my place secured too. That sucks, because I seem to remember that you got that as a gift to mark the occasion of your very last prosthetic body resizing. But I don't know who gave the watch to you. So you knew. Well, don't get the wrong idea. I didn't actually wear it for sentimental purposes. What's the real reason you've always stuck with female model bodies? Because you wanted to have slender arms and wrists that the watch's strap would fit around? You can change your prosthetic body or your brain, but there's still a few things you can't swap out, and you know it! What are you so worked up about? I changed my body and brain case as circumstances required. Therefore, I'll just change my memories, too. To me, this... So there, there are multiple ways that this strikes me, and... I, I think one of the biggest pieces for me that I think about when I see the way that Kuzanagi is talking about her body here. Uh, so I worked at this video archive called Media Burn. And some of the tapes that I digitized were about this quote unquote female impersonator by night who was a construction worker by day. And the video was produced in the 90s. And this person who. Like, I don't want to reveal more detail. I did end up looking this person up and found they're they're generally a lot more like private now than I think they were back then. Um, and also like she identifies as a trans woman now. But in this video, she is within the construction job still presenting or talking about being like a man who just does this as a side hustle because it makes good money and it's like oh why did you get implants and it's just like oh it makes the job easier and so there's a certain amount of me reading this in of Motoko being like this body is something that I've had to fight for to a great extent that I've had to like claim for myself and I don't really want to get into it with you Bato in this moment where I'm still like struggling for my life and for my body and I'm trying to figure out like what does this mean for me now that section nine isn't here like you are like you are talking about the fear that I have about my body that is like coming real currently and you're like demanding some explanation from me about why I have chosen this body and actually just like fuck off and I'm just gonna <laughs> be like I'm going to like do these cold like you're the one who's sentimental and I'm going to like specifically play up this thing that I know is a weak point for you of being like, Oh, you're the one who's sentimental. You're the one who has memories. Um, which I think also like is why Bato is so angry here being like, Hey, yes, I have these emotions and these sentimentalities. I'm still mad about what happened with the Tachikomas. Like, I think all of it, like this scene, both 
of the characters, the reactions make sense yeah. to me of Bato being like, I'm actually mad about what happened because I am sentimental and now you're blowing it off. And Motoko actually being sentimental, but in this moment being like, I don't want to actually talk to you in this moment about what's going on with me and my body. And I want to just play it off and just like, stop, like drop it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which, you know, to such an extent, in fact, that because I had already begun reading in, even when I first watched this before I knew I was trans, I think like you still have these moments before you figure it out where things are resonating with you. And I had this understanding of like Major Kusanaki, even though I wouldn't say it in so many words, as someone who throughout the series was like claiming and asserting some control over her body. That when I first saw the scene, the very first time I watched it when it was airing on like Adult Swim or whatever, I thought that what was happening here was Bato being like, oh, you actually are Motoko. You're some other agent posing as Motoko and you're going to try and kill me because of like how much this felt at odds with how I understood her relationship with her body. Mm-hmm. And it is like in rewatching it that I'm able to see like, oh, this is actually, and also as someone who has had to sometimes have conversations about my body with cis people where I'm like, actually just fuck off. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you don't need to know these details that like, I I'm able to understand it from this other perspective more. This also becomes particularly inter- like the trans reading of Motoko that exists within the community around like, especially ghost in the shell standalone complex, I think is like these episodes become big things that you can point to or the places where some sort of potential, like here's actual evidence for it, which again, I don't think is actually necessary to read a character as trans, but where you can find it. Because also we'll talk more about the Tachikomas, but like after Bato is saved by the Tachikomas, Motoko appears in this child's body that is androgynous in the, like, default boyish way. In this moment in particular, you know, I'll talk about this more when we get to the very final episode, but it is so easy to see this child body that Motoko is piloting grow, like, being transferred into the adult cyborg bodies of Motoko or Aoi. That, like, this same child body is degendered in such a way that I can so easily see like you could have that body and then you could end up in Motoko's body or you could end up in Aoi's body and it would be like a continuous like movement of this like de-sexed child body into like an adult body that has the sexual markers of gender like as a part of it Mm -hmm. which I think also becomes significant when we get that convo between Bato and Motoko in episode 25, where Bato is talking to Motoko in the safe house and is basically saying like, hey, blah, 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 you know, isn't it like basically making this remark of like, hey, you're talking about how you're actually not sentimental about section nine and like headquarters and yet your safe house is looking at <laughs> section nine. <laughs> <laughs> um and Bato doesn't say it in so many words, but I think that's what's going on here. And then turns around and is like, hey, what's going on? And then Motoko steps out. I'll drop in the audio here too because I think it's great to like hear it in her own words. Nice view of section nine. You could pick anywhere in the world to live, but here's where you choose a safe house. Hey. Mm-hmm. 
This body's always suited me. No other will do. That was a remote puppet the whole time, huh? Uh-huh. something of yours that almost didn't make it here. I knew it. No matter how many prosthetic bodies you went through, this was the one thing that was always ticking away, keeping the same time as you. Nowadays, that's far too fleeting. People entrust their memories to external devices because they want to set down solid physical proof that can distinguish them as unique individuals. That watch is all you have, though, isn't it? Your only external mnemonic device that identifies the person who you've been up to this minute. Those are pretty serious words. Where'd you get them from, I'd like to know. A watch and weight training gear. Both of us have clung to useless scraps of memory, haven't we? In all probability, you and I are the only members of Section 9 who haven't been arrested or killed yet. Let's make sure that we both stay alive. At least long enough to leave behind a record of what we try to accomplish. Yeah, I'm not about to die without completing my mission. But yeah, and it's like the... The first thing that she says when she reappears in the adult body is, yep, no other body will do. Um, or I have the the subs here in our notes. I'm going to be playing the dub. So I think the line's slightly different in the dub. But like, it's just this immediate like, yeah, this is my body. <laughs> right? After like everything, her denying, like I could really, it doesn't matter to me what body I have, like blah, blah, blah. There's just this moment of like, the jig is up. Bato noticed that I have a safe house that looks over section nine. Yeah. Yeah. Here, like, this is my body. I've chosen it. No other body will do. And then yeah, like I was fucking with Bato- you. LOL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Bato goes into this big, like, Oh, here's like my whole theory about why you have that watch and why you hold on to that watch. And it's like this unique mnemonic device that identifies you with the person that you were up until now. And Motoko, like, it's interesting to me that her response at first denies this. And then after that kind of pushes this, like not like entirely you're correct, but somewhat leaning into your correct. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is like my read on it is Motoko being like, especially because what she specifically says is we've both clung to useless scraps of memory. Haven't we a watch and weight training is like the two parts that she positions um which i i find interesting as well because i think bato is saying like hey this is a mnemonic device that reminds you of who you were and i think motoko in that moment is like i'm actually not gonna fight you on this but it's slightly different it is some like assertion of identity that 
like from the trans perspective is not like this is who I necessarily was before I transitioned, but that this is some sort of demarker that like lets me claim this body as my own in the same way that you, even though you have a cyborg body are doing this weight training, which is gendered in a certain way. And is also you like what you're still used asserting. To do. Yeah. It is what you used to do, but also what you continue to do to assert some sort of sense of your body and like your body as something that you are specifically working on to be strong or something. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I think it dislocates it a little bit more from Bato saying this is specifically like a mnemonic device of the past to like, no, this is actually more about like a continuing assertion of who I am right now, which is in some ways tied to that, but in some ways isn't. It's yeah, this is like a fantastic scene. Definitely got some followers to the Ghost Divers Twitter account just by like tweeting some screenshots from this. Because <laughs> there's a lot of gender happening here. We haven't said our catchphrase yet, but <laughs> Yeah, there's um I feel like this is one of like the high points in standalone complex for me. And it's weird. I had completely like, and it's similarly to like, I think some of your experience as well, like with this series, it had been a while since I had watched these like final episodes. And for some reason, I just like totally remembered this scene in a completely different way. My recollection of it was like, Bato, like doing the same thing that he had done, being like really invasive about like like aggressive and invasive and like there is some element i think it, it's like there there is still some element of like invasiveness in him being like here's my theory like you know about like why you do this but watching it now it's like to use this word again like is it's a very sentimental scene i think just in the first place like there is a i don't know if i would call it like I mean, there's a sexual tension. I don't know if it's, like, mutual. Yeah. I don't know if it's coming from Kusanagi. Yeah, I, like, in rewatching it, so again, I had this memory of the scene before I rewatched it previously where I was like, I thought that Bato actually tried to kiss her, and it, it's literally just this, like, moment of him, like, kind of doing it, but also pushing her being like oh no let's dodge the the helicopter that's coming in to look at us yeah and actually doesn't like try to go in for the kiss which i re thought that that happened and then it like got turned down or something yeah and i still think there's a certain amount of that like bato wanting something here that major kusanagi's not fully giving while at the same time she is she is giving this like greater degree of intimacy she's finally letting, letting down the guard and just being like you're still pushing at this, but also there's a certain truth in what you're saying. And like, I will admit to you in the same way that I am also maybe in this moment admitting to myself that there is a reason why I'm so sentimental about this watch. And it is like, because of this relationship that I've built up around my body. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it seems significant that like Bato Bato, to some extent, understands the significance of the watch to the point where, like, he he puts his life in danger to, like, retrieve this, like, for her. And, I mean, again, I don't know if he really knew he was putting his life in danger uh, when he didn't expect to be attacked, probably. But, like, you know, 
it in like the atmosphere of like oh we're being hunted down and everyone's like running for their lives and i'm gonna go like to this like hideout which i know is a target for like these government forces to retrieve this watch there's like an element of like conscious risk there there's also a scene where he's like oh you know before he does it he's like yeah this is my life and i choose what to waste it on so anyway all of that to say the gesture of him going to like retrieve this specifically because he knows he has some sense what whether accurate or not or some idea of like its importance to her and like goes to these lengths to get it and bring it back to her specifically because like he knows it's important in this way there's like i think a a significance to that action that like allows for the connection and again like i definitely don't think that this is I don't really know what to think about this. I feel like I don't I don't think it's a mutual sexual like tension, but the way the scene is framed, like it's undeniable that what is being conveyed is sexual tension. Like yeah. they're not clothed to the extent that they normally are. The push away from the searchlight, like up against the wall, and then like immediately cutting to their faces like close together and like you, you know there's all these like formal tropes that it's just like you know, they're leading you to, like, think something is going to happen, but then it doesn't. But then there's, like, the resolution is that there's this other type of, like, intimacy that is, like, realized here, I feel like. Yeah, and I, I also think, like, both in the moment we don't see the sexual tension realized. And I think also, again, I've been starting up second gig, and there's, like, definitely moments where there's one character who is kind of one of the main antagonists of the show uh, of second gig who almost reads into Bato immediately being like, Oh, you're in love with her. Yeah. Right. And him just being like, no, <laughs> like, f- no, but like, but yes. you know, if that, if, if that was real, that would have been realized in some way, but it, it isn't, you know, like the major never fully embraces that in the same way that Bato wants it to. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like this is, like, I don't know. I, I just have this hunch that this might be, a, like, something we get in the question bucket. I hope it is, because it's definitely worth reviewing or re- revisiting. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you wanted to move on to talking about the Tachikomas or if you had more thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, I, I don't have quite as much to say with the Tachikomas here, but I, I think it's still useful to to touch on this, especially as... I think it ties in from my perspective with what's going on with Motoko. So during this moment of self-sacrifice where they're saving Bato, there's this moment where they're like, oh no, we are too weak to overcome this power armor. And then there's the voice of Motoko, which for me is, it's never fully clear. Is this actually Motoko observing it in this child body and talking to them or is this something else that's happening? We, When it's happening, we see this shot of this religious statue. And what Motoko says is, that's not true. What you and the others gained have made you far from powerless. So they're like, you know, we don't have power. And she's like, you've actually gained something that is giving you some sort of new power. Which again, this is like the biggest touch of hope and this idea of collectivism or something being able to like push. You know, they are gaining some sort of individualism and sense of identity but then 
that is giving them some sort of power and that they're able to then organize in this moment to work together and take down this unit to save Bato. What's also really important for me is afterwards when Major's talking to Bato, she takes a chip from the Tachikoma's body and comments, I made the call that they were useless as weapons because their AI had evolved too quickly. But while they were actively pursuing this accumulation of data and synchronizing with each other again and again, they acquired individuality without my knowing and even became capable of self-sacrifice. If only I'd realized that sooner, I could have found out whether or not they had acquired uh, what they had acquired was a ghost. If they hadn't been here, you would be dead right now. And it is like, this is a, for me, a, a nice culmination of the Tachigo. It's a sad culmination. And, you know, it's providing hope, but it's also, it's sad to me that their end is sacrificing themselves so that in a way, you know, I'll talk about this when we get to episode 26, so that both Bato and Major Kuzunagi can live. Um, And that's in one sense literalized by Bato going to recover this watch and that watch being important to major um and then also gets commented on further by motoko in episode 26 so unless you have thoughts i mean i'm throwing you either way but you can you can either talk more about this or we can just launch right into episode 26 um i think i did have like one thing that i forgot to mention i don't know if i touched on this like previously i know i talked about this like in the last episode and i feel like probably like didn't do a great job of it but specifically, like, with the character of Bato, this is another instance where, like, my initial viewing of of Ghost in the Shell, or viewings, plural, like, didn't, uh, certain things didn't come through. Going into it this time, like, my prior viewings of Ghost in the Shell, of, like, Standalone Complex, I'd always felt like, oh yeah, Bato is this kind of, like, one-dimensional character, where he's just kind of, like, this, like, macho guy trope. And there's, like, not much to him. I think, like, one of the things I want to just put out there is, like, for someone maybe watching this for the first time or, like, watching it again, while I think all of these characters have, like, interesting narratives, um, I think Bato's is one that's very subtle and more complex than, like, it initially seems. And uh, I hope that, I hope that, like our discussion of of that or like any you know anyone watching he's a character that's worth paying attention to because i think there's a complex narrative in there that's actually kind of rich he is like in some ways a frustrating character but i think he's a character that like in his own way is like struggling with like oppressive like with oppressive systems with patriarchy and his own masculinity and trying to like break from that uh, and overthrow that and achieve like this vulnerability and these like love relationships in a in an interesting way so yeah hopefully you know our discussion like enriches people's experience of of this character in a way that like for me i just totally had missed initially so with that we can go to episode 26 <laughs> uh unless you ever like you know something to add to that yeah i don't know bato he's just this ally who tries 
um yeah like that's also one of the things that just comes up for me with the both of these conversations is i think like bato's difficulty at understanding like i think kuzanagi has a clearer sense of this is what i am holding on to with the watch and with like my connection to my body and why i'm choosing a female body that that bato doesn't quite grasp yet and yet motoko is kind of saying like actually you as like cis ally it's just because you haven't had to think about it in the way that i have but that's like what your weight training is is doing the same thing and you know the answer from my reading of uh there's some things that you can't change is like not to say this in a way to say that like gender is a a static thing that someone has but that the transgender experience is one where you can change the bodies to match your gender but the gender that you have is something that you have to interrogate and come to understand and that when it comes to choosing a gender it is not the same as like choosing a prosthetic body would be it is instead a process of affirmation of saying i have like gone through this process of self-discovery and uh self-understanding and i have come to like this is my current understanding of myself and this is the the gender that i'm going to then affirm and claim as like my unique reality and identity but that that there is still something there that you cannot fully change it is that what you are changing is your your relationship to it and your choice to actively choose it and to embrace it and like i think that's also one of the big tensions that i'm seeing with like kusanagi saying like yeah you're right there is something that i can't change and you're thinking it is the sentimentality towards section nine and perhaps in some way it is i have this connection to like being the major but also there's this deeper like sense of identity that i'm arriving at through self-discovery um and that is what i'm trying to affirm by this body and by this watch yeah and that is also like what you are doing by weight training even though you don't know (laughs) that that's what you're doing yeah and i think there's a way that like bato i mean there's definitely a a discrepancy in understanding like that much is clear and that is like i think that one again the theme of like their relationship is this like disconnect in in a lot of ways where like only kind of here at the end do we see like you could you could call this kind of a breakthrough but you know just the first steps of like beginning to communicate about this or the first steps like towards an understanding you know i think with bato like like i've talked about before there's this like okay yeah like i i am a cis man but and like there's no like complication like societally for me being a cis man like i have no challenge with that this is like i'm recognized as what i identify with and i don't have like the obvious experience of like transness but like being a cis man like what i am has so much baggage that like i have to like escape from somehow and like like the the thing that like I identify with is like so fucked up that I need to like 
somehow like reckon with this or break through what what even this is and that manifests itself like it's a very what's the word i'm looking for it's a very haphazard process as we see uh where he's constantly falling back on like machismo and like aggression and like oh yeah the default response to like these frustrations is like oh it's always getting mad well then at the same time there's a sense of like seeking that i think is like the core at least in my reading like this sense of like seeking to me is like the core one of the core aspects of like his character but that's my like that's my sympathetic like that's my sympathetic like cis man reading of bato i'm not even gonna try and pretend to like extricate my my bias my personal bias from it so yeah episode 26 (laughs) yes thanks for indulging me in that episode 26 so we finally come to the end section 9 is fully disbanded all the members have been scattered to the wind we so we think kusanagi has been assassinated and the narrative then uh, recenters on togusa Togusa is, he's basically isolated, like he's, Section 9's disbanded, he's put on permanent, or, uh, you know, temporary slash permanent home leave, so he's stuck at home watching the news with no job, and he's just stewing on the news, all that all of the members of Section 9 are dead, or uh, incarcerated or dead, in Kusanagi's case. He goes around trying to, like, piece together the what's happened and he's stonewalled like at every corner the institute has been totally isolated in the meantime the prime minister has kept his promise um they his party has won re-election uh he's kept his promise to aramaki uh and and begun the prosecution of yakushima togusa is we see him questioning the justice of this the value of like the value of this as a as a set blah, 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 as a satisfactory resolution, and decides that he's going to put on the, the the laughing man hoodie and go assassinate Yakushima. And as he's about to do this, he is apprehended, and it turns out that it's Bato. Bato takes him back to uh, the new headquarters, where he finds out that all of the Section Nine members are actually totally fine <laughs> and uh, and free and working together once again. Section nine has been has been reconstituted. Um, he asks about Kusanagi, and at first, like they kind of they kind of pretend that she's dead. Bato especially like plays it off really aggressively, but then they they reveal that she she is in fact alive. Ishikawa mocks Bato for his anguish cry <laughs> when uh, he thought Kusanagi was killed. And uh, then we, we cut to Kusanagi confronting Aoi in the library, which we learned is his hideout, his public library. They talk for a while, you know, about stuff. It's not, you know, not very significant. I'm sure we won't talk about it at all. And then uh, Aramaki comes in, offers Aoi a role with Section 9, and Aoi declines. Then they go back home. And we get a final scene, which is a direct parallel to the first scene of the series, almost almost shot for shot, um, which shows Section 9 right back at it again, tracking down bad guys and 
you know, up to the usual tricks. And then uh, on that note, the uh, the series ends. So, pretty straightforward conclusion, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everything is good in the yes, end. Yes, uh, we've restored the the status quo. Everything was great at the start, and now it's back to that everything's great, you know, once again. Or or maybe not. I don't know. What do you think? I I will start off by like just putting a bow on all all the things I've been talking about throughout this about Major Kusanagi and her body. Starting with like this one little moment that just struck me this this time, which is Togusa scrolling through like what happened with the rest of section nine. And so it's these records and you're seeing like the names and then there's sex and it, you know, section nine's mostly a bunch of dudes. So it's just like sex, male, sex, male, sex, male. And then when it gets to Kusanagi, it's like literally starting to scroll down and then the scene cuts. And if you're like particularly eagle eyed, you might see that it says sex female. I literally like went and did like frame by frame (laughs) through the DVD just to like, see what does it say here? And it, it felt interesting to me that like, even in this moment, you can find the detail of here's like the official sex for major Kusanagi. And of course, like legal records can be changed. I'm a trans woman. My legal records have been changed to say sex female, but like, so I'm not saying this is any sort of proof of like, Oh, this is the true sex of major Kusanagi, but rather what I find interesting here is that if you are going to go through this process, like you have to even hunt through the frames to affirm this like identity put forth in this record in the same way that throughout the series, Major Kusanagi has been going through a process of actually like finding and affirming some sort of sense to her body. So I don't know, that could be like complete bullshit that I'm pulling out, but it just hit me in this moment. But really, I think a lot of this comes to like the final fruition around the conversation with Aoi and Motoko. Um, it's a long conversation, so I don't think I'm going to drop the full audio in, but who knows? I might like put in pieces as we talk when I'm editing this, if it makes sense. But I, I think the biggest thing that I find interesting here is, um, so there's these multiple points of, of the conversation. At the very beginning, Aoi is saying, I was worried when, like, so basically the way that Motoko escaped, it's not like, so she describes it as a fully remote prosthetic cyber brain that she's piloting. And that's what was destroyed, which seems similar to what she was doing with the, um, the child body. Yeah. The child body, but also like describes it as this near death experience. And that part of it also involved her being lost in the net for a while before coming back to a body. So that was also like a part of this process of her faking her own death, essentially, in in some way, at least, or was like piloting it and didn't know it was going to be coming at that moment is what is perhaps the truth, but still having this like backup, which again, I talked about when the the uh, armor like Sue is stomping on her that there's this moment where it seems like she's also checking out and it could be this like I'm starting to dislocate my consciousness from my body to like preserve myself in some way i don't know if that's what was happening there but it it feels like there's something you know there's a moment where she like reawakens after uh saito like knocks that armor 
uh, suit off of her. So yeah, it it's this like conversation about like one, I'm, I'm like glad you returned from the net. Aoi notices it's interesting. Your brand new body was the one that destroyed that you were piloting. You're actually still in your damaged body and you haven't done the full prosthetic swap. And we like, it's because he is able to notice that there's the, the line where the arm that she loses in that fight has been replaced, but that it's still like the rest of the body, which further feels like a, an even greater claim of like, no, like no other body other than this one that I fought so hard to like keep back in that fight. This is the body that I'm still occupying. Um, it, it has this like, importance to me even though it was damaged and i i could swap into a new one and then also the reason or the the way that she re- like found an individuality again moved out of the net despite being there um is revealed later on in the conversation where uh you know the conversation goes on and they're they're talking about these ideas of like reproduction and the body in general and i I will have a bunch more thoughts on there mentioned ziga vertov er earlier in this podcast gets a a shout out here (laughs) yeah um that was uh i laughed when i I, that's one another one i had forgotten i was like oh i forgot ziga vertov was in here but uh basically they they kind of come to this you know the name of this the series standalone complex um and aoi says yes It's the standalone complex. From the start, the very nature of our current social system has contained the mechanisms to trigger such an amazing occurrence. Personally, however, I feel this marks the beginning of a new era of despair. What's your opinion? I don't know. It's impossible for me to say. Although I have found one thing capable of restoring your individuality after all your information has been synchronized. Oh, really? And what's that? Everyday human curiosity. And holds up the chip that she got from the Tachikomas. And this is one of those moments where I think the show is very good at touching on dual meanings. Where there's one, this immediate, like, Motoko wonders if the Tachikomas awoke to something like a ghost and is hoping to find it within the chip. And that curiosity to look into it is why she returns to the, you know, being an individual, returns to this body to, like, look into this. But also there is this like always saying, hey, how did you escape from becoming one with this, you know, net existence that you have? I was worried you would be lost there. And she's like, oh, I did the process that the Tachikomas did, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like the Tachikomas showed me it is possible to even leave that state and and like develop an idea an individual identity and so like there's also this certain amount of like hey i actually just did what the tachikomas did and in that way they've also saved me by like showing me it's possible from that angle to move from that state into like here's my my sense of individuality again which also just like it feels like a nice bow on it for me as well as like again the tachikoma saving bato but also saving motoko and like helping her regain some sense of this individuality, even in the face of like being able to lose yourself into the net. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is like 
for me, this is just, I, I've touched so much on this stuff, but I, I feel like a lot of it comes to some sort of fruition here. Like I already mentioned, and I think it becomes really palpable here where they're cutting back and forth between Moroko, who's wearing Aoi's hat, and then Aoi. And this, like, again, it's so easy to see them as two endpoints from the same child body that we saw earlier. And the parallels between them are further drawn out as, like, Aoi also reveals that he's fully cyberized, and that's perhaps part of the reason why he was so drawn to this case, because of, like, cyberbrain sclerosis would be such a detrimental thing for him as well. And so it it it, it becomes this interesting thing of, like, in some ways, both of them are originals that are coming, f- like, they're both in a weird way, copies without an original or something. So yeah, I, I will, I will toss it over to you. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a lot of, I have like a whole, a whole thing. So touching on what you were talking about, like there's this idea of, um, sharing of memories, um, which we talked about extensively previously, you know, again, we have the question of like, what does it mean to, take on somebody else's memories it i think in a very fundamental sense like taking on somebody else's memories it obviously changes like who you are prior to doing that and that is a major aspect of of this conversation you know alloy has this kind of what we would expect from his character his insistence on like truth originality, so on and so forth. He kind of represents this position of the dangers of synchronization and the dangers of like the loss of individuality, one of which is the destruction of like the individuals or arguably the destruction of the individuals involved. You know, Kusanagi with Aoi's memories is not the same entity as Kusanagi before. And there is a, uh, I think part of Aoi's argument, he mentions the unconscious malice of a third party. When you share yourself, the act of absorbing somebody else into yourself, even if it is uh, unconscious, on Aoi's view, has a certain malice uh, because it does violence to um, the uniqueness of the the sharer of the person whose memories that you're taking on there's a sense that merging is not a straightforward one plus one equals two we see this in um in what happens to you uh, earlier on in the series he takes on his father's memories and they become a new entity entirely that's not you uh, and that's not his father and it begs the question of is there so there's some aspect of I don't think we can assume that, you know, the entirety of you and the entirety of his father is retained um, within this new entity. So, um, yeah, when two uh, individuals merge into one, is something lost in that process? What is gained? What is lost? And uh, is there something dangerous about that? And uh, Aoi says yes, that there is a, uh, it's the beginning of despair. Kusanagi seems to uh, acknowledge that that danger while also keeping open the possibility of like 
the most extreme, like worst case scenario, not being necessary. Um, that individuality can be reconstituted, like following this, or the, the individuality can be retained through this process. So there's a lot going on there. There's it's kind of it's kind of opposing views. Um, again, I think for a lot of people this would be like, oh, this isn't really a satisfactory. This isn't a clear resolution of like, oh yeah, like merging consciousness is good, like, or merging consciousness is bad. It's it kind of just lays out the that it's problematic and offers a some hope, but also balances balances it against like a very real sense of of the danger of of this thing. Yeah, I don't know if uh, if that rings true for you at all. Yeah, I like again, I think this show does a good job of introducing technologies and introducing risks and showing you the downsides, but also showing you the like nuances and complexities of it. I I think one of the most interesting parts here and that relation, you know, in our notes here where I wrote out a bunch of this conversation, I wrote in big letters more on reproducibility <laughs> next to Awe quoting Zygavertov. Um, I want to do the the larger quote because Awe just does a small line here. Um, so this is from Zygavertov wrote this like manifesto or like credo in I think 1923 called Kinoglas or Sinai in English. And the larger context for this quote is, I am the Sinai, I am the mechanical I. I am the machine that reveals the world to you as only I alone am able to see it. I emancipate myself henceforth and forever from human immobility. I am in constant motion. My path leads towards the creation of a fresh perception of the world. I can thus decipher a world that you do not know. And one thing is like, okay, this is obviously when Bazen writes years later about the ontology of the photographic image. Uh, this is very clearly also talking about something similar. This like the aesthetic qualities of photography, the the value of them is not the artist inserting aesthetics but the the photograph itself and the way that it lays bare a reality that is separate from the context that we as humans put on it and what i find interesting here is this assertion that you know Awe was taking this position that i think also zigavertov is putting forward of so zigavertov's like the culmination of the manifesto of kino i is or sina i is basically like if we lean into this, this is the next evolution of man mm -hmm. is for man to become more like the machine that I view as actually superior to like the fallibility of humanity. Um, Classic Veritas. And Awe, yeah. <laughs> and Awe is kind of saying like, I, I did that. And I think is like also in a more literal sense, I, I've been talking about this, like, okay, the, this series is talking about, this idea of the reproducibility of art, but it is then also saying like what happens when we extend these theories to be specifically about the reproducibility of the human body and, and these other elements, the synchronization of memories, like this kind of reproducibility has moved beyond the image to the human. 
and always kind of saying like, I've actually gone through this process and my conclusion was at least as it worked for me, I had deluded myself into thinking that by like being this personal mission that I am like the new humanity or something. And I am circulating this information that I alone had stumbled on, that I was the thing that found it. And I am the only thing that can show it to the world. That is like part of my spectacular failure as Motoko then puts it. It's sort of how I'm reading it. And then they get into this thing about the the vanishing mediator, which I'll let you get into mm-hmm. more in a little bit. And it for me, there's a certain amount of unpacking that has to be done here of, is this a failure of the actual process of the human becoming the machine? Or is this a failure of Aoi thinking that this is something that is, like that this process is unique? Again, it is... I, I deluded myself into thinking this is my personal mission. Um, not that this is something like greater than me as an individual. So yeah, I, I will let you get more into vanishing mediator stuff. Cause I know you have like, this is the Frederick Jameson part, which, you know, it's important because they named that robot. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, and before I do that, I'll just, there's a, a little bit more that I, that I would like to add. So we've gone over Aoi's like view that in in several ways like articulates these this kind of fear or dangers of like the you know sharing connecting consciousness. I think that there's a lot of things in this scene that comp- that complicate that in these final episodes. First of all, the setting, um, the fact that this is a library is uh, significant. I think a library in its own way is a kind of collective of human knowledge. I think there's something implied here about uh, humans have been trying to share their consciousness with one another, you know, for as long as we've existed. So that, you know, what what is happening now, technology is, has enabled this maybe to a greater extent, but it's not necessarily a, it, certainly not like an aberration or it's not something new, like in and of itself. Being able to link your cyber brain, although it presents like risks, just the sharing of consciousness, like in and of itself, is something that is like fundamentally for this analysis. I'll just say human, but also I want to leave open the the reality of the Tachikomas and their their consciousness, like potentially you know being something that is equivalent um, or doing this you know on an equivalent level. And uh, again, touching back on Kessler, like another part of what he talks about, um, he's very invested in the idea of like human evolution. And one of the things, one of the, or one of the dynamics that he talks about is the convergence of like different viewpoints um, and different perspectives and different consciousnesses, uh, again, as something that is fundamentally human and as something that is necessary for like evolution so again i think we see this kind of balanced um, complicated viewpoint here of like the technology that we have in the world of ghost in the shell is like enabling this to an extent an unprecedented degree it has like it involves risks and in many ways like maybe society isn't prepared like the society that we see is not prepared to like reckon with it but like that this activity is not something that's like inherently bad. The connection and like synchronization 
is not inherently bad, although it does entail this risk of like loss of differentiation potentially. We also see as kind of like a dramatic foil, Togus's isolation is like lingered on in in these episodes. He has no interaction with anyone. He has no way of getting information. He's stonewalled through the, like the internet. He's stonewalled through government agencies, and uh, he says quite explicitly like that this isolation is is excruciating, and it, in and of itself is another form of despair. So he's kind. This is kind of the opposite example of like, okay, Alloy, like you're really concerned about the despair of like the loss of dif- dis- differentiation and just being merged into this amorphous like web of consciousness. But there's also this other extreme where like you have the complete loss of connection, um, and that's not so great either. So to move uh, to move on to the politics again, you know, it always it always comes back to politics. We have here some of these final questions about political systems and regimes and change. Through Alloy, I think we see there is this almost paradoxical um, dynamic where institutions don't change themselves. They have to be changed through disruption of like convention or a disruption of of the rules. Uh, in this case, by individual like quote unquote reformers. Um, alloy in section nine but in turn the the changes must be reinstitutionalized to last think about like you know a whistleblower who exposes a certain type of corporate corruption and then you know a a law has to be passed the the institution the system has to change to outlaw that type of corruption or else like you know it's just a one-off prosecution and that corruption can continue so the changes must be reinstitutionalized, or uh, they are reinstitutionalized like automatically, for better or for worse. Tokusa complains that the white shirts get to bring the justice, while the actual reformers are either punished or or concealed. Um, so I think here we have these kind of questions about how how change works in a political system. Is it possible? which I think the Jameson quote helps us understand. <laughs> um, before I get to that, I also want to raise a point that, you know, I think you, you might have some thoughts on, is Section 9 actually reformist? Or do they merely carry out missions as per their institutional role? Looking back, uh, everything that they've done has been to close a case, to expose a crime of some sort, Crimes come across their desk, and their role is to investigate and prosecute crimes. They haven't really, uh, even though this is like turned them against their own government, the sense of justice that is like spoken of by Aramaki and by the other members of Section Nine, it seems to be inextricably linked to this idea of like performing this function of like bringing justice through the existing law and enforcing the existing law. So are they true reformers or are they just acting their part? I think the extent of reform that they uh, achieve is is highly questionable. Yeah, this is, again, this is why to some degree this ending is bleak to me because it, for me, so much of this is the revolutionary impulse of Aue and the revolutionary potential that Major Kusanagi might harbor becoming subsumed into Section 9 as a piece of the system. 
and a piece of the system that is more directly tied to like the maintaining of the rules of the system rather than you know the these parts that are corrupt to such an extent that they are going against the stated rules of the system itself and yet what they are doing is not fully at odds with a system that allows the these horrors and in, in fact in their taking down this corruption they are still complicit and uh in fact like in some cases even gleefully using some of the same horrors of the system like the satellite system where it's just like whoa there's so much information this is going to overload our system and it's like this is the like horrifying conclusion of the interceptors which were also horrifying and they didn't really care about until it was clear that it was against the laws around them right it was like it's legal oh yeah, they didn't get the like proper paperwork oh okay let's go after it now and and we just like see that continue to amplify which um, they they exploit in like the last few episodes as well yeah like bato uses yeah bato points out the like oh these interceptors got the actual footage of the laughing man kidnapping serrano and you didn't because they're hacking your eyes and also bato will later hack eyes to you know get out of a situation when fighting to recover the watch for for major kusanagi yeah it is this like, I don't want to go too much more into this because I think this is why we need to talk about Ghost in the Shell standalone complex second mm-hmm. gig after, you know, a little bit of a hiatus. There was some time in between when the series came out. So I'm okay with us like taking a downbeat and going back. But yeah, second gig is so much like there's there's way less here is a case of the week and so much of it is more continuous story, but it is more directly engaging with like, oh, like when second gig starts it's pretty clear that that section nine is just a part of the system again and they make that very explicit with them like in i think literally the first episode like basically taking down and killing these quote-unquote terrorists which i mean they are still kind of they're holding like hostages and things but it's literally refugees being like hey like we deserve rights (laughs) and that's what they're fighting for and that's what section nine is like for the state quelling but i i think it engages for the with this question and i haven't finished my rewatch and it's been a long time since i've watched second gig but i feel like they also further explore that in relation to to major kusanagi as i think the one with some ex- like togusa also to some degree but as togusa is also such a family man i think togusa is such a like i'm committed to justice but justice within a system and i think kusanagi's the one who has the most like i might actually need to reject the system to get at some other form of justice that is like something that the system can't provide and i i still don't fully know and remember exactly how that concludes in second gig but I think it's worth us exploring that specifically because of these questions that remain around section nine. Um, I think it, it's a big part of what second gig is engaged with. I look forward to, to those discussions, especially since I, I still haven't seen second gig. So you coming at it from like, I've watched this multiple times and then me being like, I'm watching this for the first time off of like our discussion, um, our ten plus hours of analyzing like standalone complex. I'm I'm pretty excited for. 
so to kind of like get us towards the end here, we turn to uh, Frederick Jameson. CEO Jameson. <laughs> now, what's funny is I had completely forgotten that not only had I forgotten that Veritov is referenced here, but I had forgotten that Jameson is referenced. Um, and I don't know what I was thinking when I watched this, uh, how I missed that. Because it just so happens that when I was an undergrad, um, my thesis advisor uh, had actually studied under Jameson at Duke. And so he was a huge Jameson. I mean, he, he is. Uh, he is a huge Jameson guy, um, like total disciple. And he actually made us read the text that um, is, is being referenced like obliquely here. It's, it's a, a text called The Political Unconscious. It's probably Jameson's most famous, most famous book. I will not attempt to summarize it <laughs> because uh, that would be a, a fool's errand. Um, but uh, there is um, exploring this connection is really, I think, really useful. So I'll first revisit the conversation between Aoi and Kusanagi. They're, uh, again, they're talking about Aoi's motivations for, for doing what he's done. I was kidding myself by thinking it was my personal mission to prove and circulate that information, vital data I alone had happened upon. Failing spectacularly, the pure innocent mediator grew dejected at the base nature of the social system and he turned mute. Yes, it was because of that I became the vanishing mediator. Just like an author whose existence is emphasized by the fact that he rarely puts out any new works for publication. In other words, by disappearing, it acts as a regulating medium for the dynamism of the social system. Per sociological theory, it ultimately vanishes, leaving no trace of its presence inside or outside the system. Frederick Jameson, I believe. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Um, also, clearly, like, nodding to the J.D. Salinger... Aspect. Yes, exactly. Um, Looking at Jameson, uh, I think, and that I mean that bit of dialogue, like, is it's extremely oblique. And looking at Jameson, like, I think is can really help us understand um, the political implications of this scene and what it means for the for the ending of Standalone Complex. So I'm going to read a quotation from the Political Unconscious. Uh, this is part of Jameson's discussion of the historical novel. Jameson says. The vanishing mediator of the prophetic or charismatic individual term, meaning entity or character, or uh, uh, just individual actor. Um, the prophetic or charismatic individual term whose historical but trans-individual function, according to the ruse of history, is merely to enable the coming into being after him of a new type of collectivity. The novel's protagonist, he's referring to two novels here. The novel's protagonist is at the moment of the action of the individual subject, the one which is at one, one which is at once reabsorbed by the very stability and transindividuality of the institutions it is necessary to found. History uses their individual passions and values as its unwitting instruments for the construction of a new institutional space in which they fail to recognize themselves or their actions, and from which they can only either slowly or violently be effaced. Remnants of another age not, this time the myth of origins and the golden age of the giants, but rather the moment of, of the mediatory transition to another social form, a form as degraded, as trans-individual, as non-narratable as the one that preceded it, although in its quite own different way. There's obviously a lot to unpack there as well. But uh, I think 
to uh, just kind of elucidate the connection here, um, Aoi is describing he's aware of himself as a historical actor. He has this prophetic or charismatic power or authority to in what he's done. Um, we see that power. It echoes through the entirety of the series. It echoes through the public. It echoes through historical memory. Uh, it echoes through institutions. It it changes the workings of government and the even the oligarch the business oligarchies that rule uh, rule over Japan. But as the vanishing mediator, Aoi, his function is is to enable uh, a, a new type of collectivity. So the disruption of Aoi, his uh, prophetic or charismatic authority and his power in doing this thing, although it challenges the the system as such and creates this immense change, his his presence and his the reality of his action and his significance is instantly reabsorbed by the institution, which, uh, as we see, reorganizes itself immediately in a new form. Um, so we can think about how the uh, corrupt government um, immediately uses alloys, alloy as a pretext for this laughing man ruse to do these bailouts, to, to force through, to first do the corporate blackmail, then to force the public bailouts, uh, and then to transfer this, all this public money to Yakushima um, and his party. And all of a sudden, uh, the laughing man phenomenon becomes something that is wielded by the institution or by the powers that be um, and by hegemony to reconstitute itself in a new way. I think we can you know, continue to, to expound on this, but this is in essence what Alloy is describing here of not being able to recognize like the consequences of his actions or not uh, being alienated from, from his own actions from his own identity in this process. He is violently effaced. He effaces himself in a certain way, but he's also effaced by this like supplanting of the laughing man, the superimposing of the laughing man concept over like his actions. And uh, again, the decision to just um, to make himself vanish. So, uh, yeah, Jameson seems to, or this reference to Jameson um, really seems to elucidate, like, I think a very bleak aspect of, of this ending, which is that, like, as we've touched on before, you know, individuals, the revolutionary impulses of individuals, the revolutionary possibilities that are, like, brought about by these individuals seem at the end of standalone complex, at least. To, to not bring about a, true, a real revolution, um, but instead uh, to bring about another uh, social form that is equally degraded <laughs> as, the, as the one that they rebelled against uh, initially. So that's my two cents. Um, I know you, you probably have a thought or two on that. Yeah, I mean, we can, we can like start wrapping up. I'm just going to like throw my last little bit here because... As Aoi points out, the quote is not entirely Frederick Jameson. The last bit comes from Masachi Osawa. I did a little bit of looking into this, and apparently this is another philosopher, and I think in the, the U.S. primarily known as mostly a, a like sociologist or social scientist. 
but apparently had some significant influence on the concept of the standalone complex in particular that is referenced in the show. Uh, I think it's not unintentional that it's the last name mentioned here. And also that it is like all these other ones are thinkers from other countries. And then this is the Japanese thinker that they call out at the very end. I probably will end up looking more into some of Masachi Osawa's writings if I can find them from my initial search of the internet. Um, it actually seems like a fair amount of interest in Osawa that currently exists is actually based in part on people looking into Ghost in the Shell standalone complex and writing about Ghost in the Shell standalone complex and relating it to uh, Masachi Osawa. But um, I think he's I believe the the newest of the writers who's called out in this conversation between Motoko and Aoi and uh, has done a lot of work about like the nature of virtuality and technology and has apparently also done some work into otaku subculture in Japan. So yeah, it'll be interesting if I can dig some stuff up to read when we get to second gig, but otherwise I like, I don't know if you have final thoughts, but I think we can wrap it here. We've got, we've got a chance to talk more about (laughs) like, Ghost in the Shell, both when we do second gig, but also when we do the question bucket, which for us recording this right now will be a while. We're we're gonna record some stuff in between. But for you listener, it's coming in two weeks. So if you have questions for the question bucket, you have one more week to get them in. Uh send them the ghostdiverspod at gmail.com, put Ghost in the Shell standalone complex in the title. I put that in there because I like announced some of the other series ahead of time. So if you're listening to this and you already have questions about Utena, go ahead and send them in right now. It w- we'll get to it when we get to it. <laughs> Any final thoughts? Um, no. Um, thank you all for, uh, for listening along, maybe watching along with us. And uh, I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed our, our extensive discussion of Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Uh, So, as I said, next episode will be the question bucket for Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, as well as the intro episode will also release for Cromarty High School, which is the next series we're doing. So look forward to that. I'm sure we'll have just as in-depth conversations about the significance of (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, as we've had. I'm I'm really looking forward to Cromarty High School. It's uh, it's going to be a great change of pace, I think. Yeah, uh, I hope we'll show some of the breadth of like what we're going to be talking about here. So for all the final wrap up stuff, thanks again to the Export Audio Network for hosting us. You can go to exportaud.io or patreon.com slash exportaudio. Exportaud.io also goes to patreon.com slash exportaudio. It's just a much more entertaining URL. <laughs> you can follow the show at Ghost Divers Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can follow me at FoxVomnia on Twitter and also technically Instagram. I, I use Twitter more. Uh, where can people find you, Connor? Uh, at Rebelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Uh, and that that's it. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you.
stretch for a second. <laughs> uh, um, it's late. It is. It's late. Um, that was that was really fun. Yeah. I feel like I, I mean that's a lot of content, like as per usual. But I felt good about that. I'm, I mean, like an hour of that is the intro that's releasing next week. So yeah, yeah. I felt I felt pretty good about that one as like a wrap up for Ghost in the Shell. Um, you know, and I really want to do like. It's such a great series. I just want to do it justice. And I feel like we did. All right. I think we're done. I think so too. Come on. Wait. Craig left at some point. Without telling us. (sighs) Oh, well. Craig ditched us. I've been unexpectedly disconnected. That's annoying. Anyway. Uh, It's fine. I think our recordings were fine, so... Yeah, it's it's late. I'm pretty sure Emily's asleep, so I will just say goodbye. All right, let us start the next step. Ep- Let's like start the episode. We've been recording for an hour. Let's do it. Um, <sighs> it's only nine. We've got we have time. We have time. We can do this, oh, yeah. Connor. We can do this. Oh, I'm with you. I'm just getting warmed up. Yeah. All right. That was great. We should we should record that episode every time before we do our, our normal episode. I just so what what has happened is as usual, I so I started with a cocktail, which is a good doctor. It's a great cocktail. It's rye whiskey, fernet branca, and Dr. Pepper with an orange slice. Mm. Started mm. with that. Now I'm drinking some hard cider. I'm I'm on my fall on one. This is when we are, we are an hour into a podcast, and I'm like, let me rant at you about Bazen for a while. Except this is the energy I'm bringing to the start of this episode because we just recorded something. We're just gonna come screaming out of the gate here. Yeah, are you ready? I I think I think so.